Welcome in, everybody. Episode 80, 80 of Four Score the Podcast. Andrew May alongside Rob Jufray with you. Hard to believe it's been 80 episodes. Getting close, closer and closer to that milestone yeah. number 100. So That's a big been, surprise uh, party for somebody of that age. Yeah, yeah, 80 years old. You're you're getting close to that, aren't you? Yeah, I'm right there. You know, <laughs> thanks. Like, I didn't expect that fucking insult to come. I mean, you, you set yourself up for these things. What can I uh, say? I, listen, I, I gave you an alley-oop. And you slam dunked it. That's that's what I do. I take advantage of every opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got a lot of stuff on the docket tonight. Um, we got World Series champion Atlanta Braves, which oh. much to the dismay of Rob and myself. So, oh. you know, we'll, we'll spend a brief little time touching on that series and, oh. and how it went down. Uh, we got a full week's worth of football to recap. A big oh. win for the New York Jets and a brutal, brutal loss for the New York Giants on Monday Night oh. Football. So, We'll do a deep dive into both of those games as we normally do when it comes to the New York teams. We'll recap some of the big storylines from last week. We will look ahead to week nine of the regular season. We're almost we're pretty much at the halfway point now. This is what happens when football season starts and flies by. And we'll do our pick'em segment. And I, I picked up some some pretty valuable ground on Rob this week. But I gotta tell you, normally I'd be in here, you know, talking to talk and walking to walk. I looked at the board before the show. I'm stumped. I think it's absolutely disgusting. Not from a, not from an intrigue perspective. I think there's some pretty good games on the docket, but in terms of picking some lines for these games, I found it disgusting. It's going to be a really really tough week. I'm going to make my three picks, but I don't know if I'm going to be making them with any sort of conviction. Um, and as we record right now, the New York Knicks are underway. They are uh, currently down by 14 to the Pacers in the early going. Haven't been able to knock down too many shots, and they're not playing good defense. But uh, we'll touch a little bit on the Knicks and how they've gone in their first two weeks of play. So packed out show. We'll start with the football as we normally do. And we'll start with the New York Giants. That's fresh on everyone's mind because they played the latest game of the week, and that was on Monday night. And Rob and I kind of gave you an outlook for what we were expecting in this game. Ultimately, Kansas City was the better team on paper. There's more talent on the roster. And you could not expect the Giants to win this game, uh, even though Kansas City has had their struggles. The one thing that we were both hoping for is that this is not a pick-me-up game for the Kansas City Chiefs and that they didn't wipe the floor with the Giants because that would be incredibly disheartening. And that's not what happened. The Giants were in this game up until the very end. You can even argue that the Giants were the better team for most of the night and the game was well within their grasp in order to win it. But as the saying goes, Rob, good teams find a way to win. And on the flip side, bad teams find a way to lose. And the Giants did just that. They found a way to lose the game again. It's the same old stuff with this group. I gave Joe Judge a bunch of criticism a few weeks ago because for everything he preaches about discipline and being detail-oriented and playing with structure, I see none of that. I see too many undisciplined penalties, too many dumb penalties. A couple of them came back to really bite the Giants. And offsides on a play in which Patrick Mahomes threw an interception with five and a half minutes left in the game, if the Giants are able to get a couple of first downs and put some points on the board, that game is over. And the Giants could have wrapped it up and escaped Arrowhead with a big time Monday night win. And with this extra wild card spot, they would have been in an incredibly advantageous spot to potentially be in the hunt for a playoff berth as you get down the stretch here in the season. But instead, that penalty comes back to haunt them. You had a big time gain by Elijah Penny that was called back because of a taunting penalty. And look, you can tell me all you want to tell me about the taunting rules being stupid and that you don't agree with them. And I would be totally in lockstep with you. They're dumb rules. But at this point in the season, Rob, we're in week eight. You know that these taunting rules are in effect. Just shut your mouth and give the ball to the official. Don't do anything extracurricular because the officials are going to call it. 
And again, that goes back to being undisciplined. So I don't know if it's the players not buying in. I don't know if it's judge, the judge's message being stale because they're not winning ball games. Uh, part of it has to do with the front office too, because look, why is Bill Belichick's style of coaching work so well in New England? One, he's a genius, but two, they also know how to scout players that they know are going to be able to buy in. And if they get players on the roster that aren't, aren't in lockstep with the coach's philosophy and the front office's way of thinking, they cut bait with them. So we're not seeing things formulate the way you would have hoped in year two of Joe Judge. And you had to hear him come out in the press conference and make these excuses about burning timeouts in situations where they could, shouldn't have. And he blames it on headset malfunctions, and it's been happening in every single stadium, whether it's home or away. It's been happening every week, and someone needs to get it fit. It just, it just sounds like, you know, poor me, pity me, and I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The last thing I want to see is excuse-making at this juncture in the season. Look, we know the Giants are not, a, are not a very good team, okay? But they're also not a terrible team. The fashion in which they've lost some of these games is heartbreaking. The one against the Rams was embarrassing. You could pretty much throw everything out the window with that game. That was a, that was a game that made you make a, take a long, hard look in the mirror. But these losses, particularly the Thursday night one to Washington in Week 2, and now this Monday night game to the Chiefs, I mean, it just makes you wonder how much work there is truly to be done with this team before they start to build that winning culture because they're, they're identifying new ways to lose, it seems like, every single week. And this was a, a big-time gut punch for the Giants. Yeah, well, listen, you said it all right there, my friend. I mean, but this is what happens when, when, you're, when you have to use free agency to build this team and piece this team together when you're not utilizing the draft properly. Because there's no chance to build a culture when when 50% of your team are free agents. It's just no way. So this game the other night was on a silver platter for the Giants. And, you know, you really can't fault the defense that much. I know they got gashed by the run. But as I've told you in the past, Andrew, the last few weeks, a lot of teams are employing this defensive strategy now. They're playing the two safeties about 25 yards off the line of scrimmage, man. And the Giants did that with Logan Ryan and, and, and Xavier McKinney the other night. Like all these other teams are doing it against these high-powered offenses. They're taking away the big deep ball and the big one-hit shot down a field, and they're making them uh, uh, run, run 10, 15 plays you know, to get into the end zone instead of having that one big hit. And you can see it. It affects the Kansas City Chiefs because they're so used to hitting that big shot over the top with Tyreek Hill, McCole, McCole Hardman, guys like that. They, they're not taking – they're not being patient enough at times and then making that mistake. And Mahomes made a few mistakes again the other night. He even fumbled in that fourth quarter. And I tell you, the Giants were a bounce away from recovering that ball and actually getting the ball back and saving themselves three more points. But once again, you know, it's the Giants' own fault. Fundamentals, discipline that, that judge preaches has gone by the wayside. As you mentioned, Elijah Penny, there's no reason for it. Listen, I think the taunting rule is so stupid. You're asking these guys that, that are maniacs. These guys are maniacs that are playing this game. They're violent. They're emotional. And you're asking them to, to reel that in. All right. Judgment call on the taunting thing. What Penny did wasn't terrible. Yeah, it's the rule, though. And you need to follow the rule. You're eight weeks into the season. You got to follow the rule. The rule is the rule. Like it. Love it. Whatever it may be. You got to follow the rule. And that cost the Giants a hell of a lot of yardage. They were on the plus side of the 50. And instead, they want to back at their own 35. And they did nothing, really nothing after that. They picked up another penalty on a holding call, a defensive holding call. But still, it really went nowhere. 
And that took all the momentum and, and everything that they built up from that. They were building up from that drive, taken away from them, wiped it right out. It wiped it out. So listen, Penny's at fault. In my opinion, I would have cut that guy's ass the next day. I would have cut him because it, it, to a certain degree, it might have cost you that game. He might have cost you the game. Here's a guy that gets one or two plays a game. And that's how you're reacting? Really? Come on. Act like you've been there. Let's stop. You know, and then there were a couple of plays, and the one being on the last drive of the game, it happened actually earlier in the game as well. I think it was the second quarter. But you got first and 20. It's first and 20. Zimenez, why are you going off sides? My God. My God. To me, that's just focus and discipline there. It's a lack of focus and discipline. You're going off sides and first and 20. You cannot do that. You just can't. You can't do it. That gave them five more yards back after they took that holding call and the Giants got a break on that. With that last drive, my God, you had them. You had them pinned deep. You had them pinned deep and you let them right off the hook again. You let them right off the hook. Well, there was a the there offense? was a couple issues that I had in that game. The, the the first one was towards the end of the well. No, let me go in chronological order here. In the first quarter, first drive of the game, Kansas City goes down to down a field, and as they get in the red zone, Patrick Mahomes throws a pick in the end zone, and that was a perfect opportunity for the Giants to flip the script. It looked like Kansas City had the momentum in the early going. They moved down the field yeah. pretty methodically, had the crowd in their well, favor at home. They well, come up with the interception, though. and then the two plays later, right. Jones throws it well, right back to them. The, the interception happens. I, it, it was a god-awful interception. Don't get me wrong. That happens. It, it happens. To me, it's the discipline. It's the not, it's, it's, it's the going off sides on first and 20. It's the taunting penalty after you gain 25 yards on a short little pass play. That to me, that's what pisses me off. And in a set, listen, he played pretty much a clean game, Jones, for the most part, with the exception of interception. Yes, it was a bad interception, no doubt. It was a mistake. But these other mistakes I'm mentioning are mistakes of focus and discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's basically it's like a guy making an error on a hard hit ground ball. All right, he makes an error. It's going to happen. But when you get picked off for first base, that's a lot different. You know, that's what I'm saying. You know, when you get thrown out at third base by 30 feet, that's a lot different. So even in football, it's no different. You cannot have these sort of mistakes like that. That's what separates a winning team from a losing team. I I see a little bit. You know, we gave a lot of criticism Jason Garrett's way in the early going for his lack of creativity offensively. And you, you're starting to see a couple of plays here and there that show some creativity. Obviously, you had the, the Philly special type play to Daniel Jones a week ago against Carolina. You had a play in this game where I believe was it Kadarius Tony who threw a pass downfield. I believe it was Tony who who kind of got a jet sweep and made and made a passing play. So, you know, there's some layers of creativity to the offense, but then there's other points where I, I just question, like, does Jason Garrett have a clue? And one of those other points is late in the second quarter, you're driving, you got two minutes left, close to two minutes left in the half, you have a third and four at Kansas City seven-yard line, and they throw a one-yard out route. They throw a one-yard out route to Sterling Shepard. If you're not going for it on fourth down, which they didn't, they end up kicking a field goal with Gano. To me, if you're not going for it on fourth down, you need to throw the ball past the sticks or at least throw the ball in the middle of the field and let your playmaker get the ball in space and try to make guys miss. Throwing a one-yard out route in that situation, it's just—it's mind-boggling to me. So it's a multitude of different things. And I, and I think my main point being, 
there's certain teams that are right on the edge of competing, and there's oftentimes when they lose games, there's one singular thing you can point to as a difference maker. With the Giants, there's a lot of different layers where they're falling short, and it's a bunch of different plays here and there that are culminating in losses. And to me, that's the makings of a team let, let that's further away than you would think. Let me ask you a question. Where was Evan Ingram the first three and a half quarters of that game? No, with all your skill position players out, you need to have more from your number one tight end. You need why, to have more. Why? Yeah, but uh, you know we can't even blame him because they didn't. He didn't have one target. No, no, all three targets of his came in the second half. He had what three catches for fifteen yards. One of them being yeah. a touchdown. One yeah. of them being a all touchdown. All came in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and two of them were on that last drive or, or, or second. The and, last drive and the second last. And drive believe me, I was and, and I was touchdown. paying attention. I was paying attention because in one of my fantasy teams with Darren Waller on a bye week, I had to pick up Engram and start him. So I was paying attention. He was on the field. Was not even his side of the field was not even being. They weren't even at. looking at him. They weren't even looking at him, and which to me is mind boggling. It's mind boggling that they cannot get this guy. And I understand he's had the drops, but if he's going to be on the field and he is a mismatch for the most part. You, listen, you still got to try and get him the ball. I'm sorry. Well, you've had the front office come out and publicly back this guy and tell you how much potential that he has, but then you don't incorporate him into the offense in a game that all your skill position players are down. I mean, you came into the game a little bit more healthy than you've been in recent weeks, but not right really. off the bat, Dante not Pettis really. goes out. Sterling Shepard goes out. Tony gets re-injured in the game. He was able to come back in. Galladay is still out. So Barkley still out. And now today, Barkley tests positive for COVID. The guy just cannot get on the field. It's, in- it's incredible. But you're having so much turnover as far as your skill position players are concerned. Your first round pick that you have publicly backed and told everybody how much potential this guy has and how his, his work ethic is great and all this stuff. And then you don't incorporate him into the offense. Again, it's, it's mind-numbing for fans. It drives the fans crazy. Because well, what are they seeing that we're not? They didn't incorporate Tony into that offense until mid-second quarter when he threw a pass. Mm-hmm. They didn't incorporate him into the offense all that much. It, uh, look, look, if he was hurt, then don't, don't play. If you're on the field, then I'm sorry. I, I, you're on the field. That's it. It looks sort of like he was on a snap count in the first half because it's not even like he wasn't getting targets. He was not playing a ton of snaps in the first well, half. Listen, he was playing all the snaps in the second half. Maybe they had no choice, but he was playing. He so was, yeah, he once guys went down, he was playing. But if he was good enough to play in the cautious. second half, then he's got to play in the first half. Don't be cautious because basically, I don't I, you know, I, look, I, you got to blame Jason Garrett for a lot of this himself. I understand the injuries. I understand the offensive line, but I'm getting tired of the excuses because you know what? After the other night, I had enough of Daniel Jones. I'm convinced this kid will never amount to much. He's just not going to amount to much. He's not going to have the ability. And I told you this, although he, I thought he did it somewhat uh, the week before against the Panthers. He doesn't have the ability to make other players around him better. He doesn't have the ability to put a team on his back, which could have been, you know, he could have did that Monday night. You know, to me, that kid just doesn't want to unload the ball downfield. This isn't college. You're not going to see guys wide open by five, six, seven yards. If a guy's open by a half a step, he's wide open in the NFL. You get him the ball. You got to get him the ball. To me, Jones takes way too much time deciphering whether or not he's going to throw that ball downfield. He had a shot. He had a shot to put the Giants ahead and possibly win that game. And they ultimately got the defensive holding call, but he had Darius Slayton open downfield. He had him open, and he overthrew him. Once again, off target. So that's a problem. That's an issue. 
When when you have third and seven, you're checking the ball down three yards. That's an issue. The last drive of the game I had a problem with. You cannot take a sack. I don't care. You cannot take a sack. You just can't. You cannot throw the ball two yards to the to the, the sideline on the second play then. I'd rather see you throw the ball, hurl it down the field 25, 30 yards, and if it gets picked, then it gets picked. But I'd rather see you take a shot like that and get the chance of a tip ball, get the chance of an interference, a deflection, or just a pure catch and having a guy make a play. I'd rather see you do that than hold the damn ball. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it with this kid. I'm sorry. He just he doesn't have what it takes. I'm telling you right now, the Giants need to draft another quarterback after this season. I'm convinced of it. I said I'd give this kid an entire season. I gave him half this season now, and I am not convinced of anything with this kid. Yeah, he's cut down on the on the turnovers, although he had that interception. I get it, but he's cut down on the turnovers. But you know what? He, I'm sorry. He, he's just not a gunslinger. There's still no he, explosiveness to the he, offense. That's no, the bottom no line. Explosiveness. That's and the bottom line. You know, we're quick to blame the offensive coordinator, but maybe it's Garrett in his head saying, okay, we still can't, we can't trust this kid. And not only that, but the plays were calling for this kid. You know, he, he's not, he, he, he doesn't have, he's, it, his mind doesn't have the ability to get the ball where it needs to be. So that's just what it comes down to. Now, I don't know if this kid's thrown to a spot or he's thrown to the receiver itself. Those are things you have to see on film. But one thing Boomer Sison brought up, and that's going back in relation to the headset issue, that Joe Judge using an excuse. I guess the Giants are the only team in the NFL for seven weeks that had headset issues that they were going, you know, that they were they were shortening out on them or whatever it was. Maybe they didn't update, update their software. Who the freak knows these idiots? But to use that as an excuse is a piss poor excuse. Because not for nothing, and Boomer said it himself, and he was a quarterback. We all know it. MVP. He said, he said, Daniel Jones has to know by now in his third year that the personnel he has on the field, he's got certain packages and certain plays he can run. So even if the headsets are out, it's up to Daniel Jones to call a play right then and there. There's no reason to take a timeout there. There's no reason to burn three timeouts by the second quarter. Zero. None. And what leads me to believe that Judge doesn't know what he's doing with these timeouts. And listen, I've been a Joe Judge fan from the get-go. But I'm starting to see these warts now come out. Look, I'm going to go to the end of that game. You had two minutes, 32 seconds left on second down with the Chiefs on what? Your 10-yard line. Now the 35-second play clock starts to run. Instead of calling that last timeout that they had and saving that time there, saving those 32 seconds there, those precious 32 seconds there, he let the clock run all the way down to the two-minute warning without the Chiefs having to run a fucking play. I mean, Andrew, this, am I being unrealistic here? It doesn't make sense. How the hell do you do that? Because if you wouldn't, if you would have called the timeout at 2.32, they have to run the play. Okay, they run the play. Now it's third down, and now they can run it down, fine, which they would have, the Chiefs. No problem. They have no more timeouts left. the Giants. They run it down to the two-minute warning. They have to run now off the two-minute warning. They have to run the third down play, which they did not do anything on. Nobody was open. Uh, Mahomes just took the sack. Didn't want to throw the incompletion or anything like that. So he takes the easy sack. He loses a couple yards. No big deal. The clock run. The clock would have run down to about a minute and a half where they would have had to kick the field goal instead of a minute two. That's 28 seconds. 
28. What were you doing with that timeout? Why were you saving it for? For what? To run those three plays that you ran at the end of the game? Are you kidding me? So, you know, this whole timeout thing that Joe Judge is making piss poor excuses for, it doesn't run with me. It doesn't. Because I've seen the way he handles those timeouts at the end of the game. And I'm sorry, there's, there's some warts here now with Joe Judge. And all this bullshit with all this submarine talk and headsets and crap, just come out and say, we don't play good enough, our players aren't good enough, and we're not coaching good enough. That's it. So that's why we don't win. We don't know how to win. How about you just say that? And how from about every, you just be honest? Everything you saw from Joe Judge in his first couple months as Giants head coach, you would expect that from him. This scene, and I know it, it, it. You know you can't judge a book by its cover, and obviously we never got a fair look at Joe Judge. This is his first taste of NFL head coaching, so maybe we were a little off base, jumping to conclusions about what kind of coach he was going to be. But we, you would expect this kind of behavior from Joe Judge, where he is accountable, because that's all he preaches is accountability. But all the excuse making, it just seems very out of character. Maybe we were too quick to judge what kind of coach he was going to be. But listen, you, again, it, this is. This is why I think the Giants are so far away because, you know, I know you came into the season and you said they were a five or six win team, but you know what? You came into the season, there were a couple things you, okay, the defense looked like it was real good last year. Was it schematics? Was it good players? We didn't know. Now we said it was schematics, and obviously the schematics are not that great either because Patrick Graham's not making any adjustments and the defense has been, been nowhere near as good as we expected. No, but the defense, the last three or four games, defense has been pretty good, except in the Ram game, which... Listen, uh, the Rams are the Rams. It's a high-powered offense. But pretty much against the Panthers, even against the Chiefs, they did what they – they scored six points in the second half, the Chiefs. So the defense what they what, did what they needed to do, yeah. Were they giving up chunk yardage on, on the run? Yes, they were. But, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. Do you want them to have the easy 60-yard bomb touchdown or do you want them to drive the field? Well, with a high-powered offense like that, you want it to drive the field. So to limit them to 20 points – I thought the defense did what they had to do. They did a tremendous job the other day. They did good enough the other night, but as you know, as far as a large sample size for the whole entire season, they've been underwhelming. And that, that that's my main point is that year three of your quarterback hoping he takes strides, year two of a head coaching hire that you thought you got right, and a defense that you thought was really good. Well, the defense for the most part has not been really good. You got a bunch of guys who have been injured. You got guys who look like they've not earn their contracts a la Leonard Williams. Your quarterback is not taking strides. And now there's legitimate gripes about the head coach. So like, where do we go from here? Everything that led you to believe that you had some sort of hope coming into this season is now gone and washed away. And now it looks like no one, everyone's fate is sealed. I mean, well, it's, look, it's judge look, back look. is Gettleman back is Jones back. We don't look, know. It's totally first, up in the air. First now. and foremost, Gettleman can't come back. He, he, it's nothing short of a miracle. He can't come back because the product on the field is, is, is of his volition. I'm sorry. He drafted these guys. He brought these guys in via free agency. He had to sign guys via free agency because his his draft his drafting was was piss poor. The Barkley pick, the Will Hernandez pick, has not panned out. Will Hernandez has been below average. He's been below average. I'm sorry. I, he just has been. He hasn't amounted to much. Will Hernandez, a kid that came in into the league and even in his rookie year looked promising, has done nothing since then. I, I don't know what it is. But he just hasn't done a thing with the Giants, really. I mean, I understand they've had some injuries along the offensive line, but you know what? This past draft, they didn't draft one offensive lineman in that draft. You know, for a guy that came in preaching hog mollies from the get-go, stood behind a podium from the first day on, and 
preached hog mollies. This guy hasn't solved any hog molly problem. And the, you know, the giants had to go out and, and, and sign guys off the scrap heap, whether it be Billy price or Bredersen or any one of these guys, you know, listen, I understand Lemieux got hurt. Gates got hurt. Andrew Thomas is now hurt. You know, Pert had to move over to the other side, but I'll be honest with you. I think the offensive line is doing a, a pretty decent job considering the injuries that they had and the depth that they lack. I don't think it's been horrendous. I really don't. I think a lot of your problem is the damn quarterback. I'm sorry. That's why I'm tired of making offensive line excuses. Let's stop making excuses for the quarterback. And I haven't been one to make excuses for Daniel Jones because I refuse. Because I've seen three backup quarterbacks come in on Sunday and all win games and all put the team on their back. Cooper Rush, Mike White, and Trevor Simeon. Yeah, White, a guy, who never, that was, White, that a guy who's tremendous. never started a game, Cooper Rush, who's never started a game, and Trevor Simeon, who hasn't taken a meaningful yeah. snap since 2017. And they took no the problem. team and put them on their shoulders and said, don't oh, and worry, way, I got this. By the way, I don't, I don't, know, I don't even know if Mike, 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 Mike White got, got sacked that whole game against the Bengals. I don't even know if he got sacked, maybe once, maybe twice. But no, all I know is that he was 37 or 45 and drew for over 400 yards against a pretty damn good Bengal defense. And he was able to solve something. And what does his weapons look like out there? Elijah Moore, Denzel Mims, uh, Jamison Crowder. He's got no tight end. So wh what does he have out there? So why are we making excuses for Daniel Jones? I've never seen – I haven't seen a game like that from Daniel Jones in forever. Mike White has an atrocious offensive line, and his second top target getter on Sunday was Braxton Berrios. Yeah. Okay. So so then what's – why we why why do Giant fans need to make excuses for Daniel Jones? And I've heard enough of it. I've heard enough. It's enough of the – it's enough of the excuses for the kid. I'm sorry. When I got to see Mike White come in – and listen, maybe the Cooper Rush might be a little bit of a different situation because Dallas offensive line is very good – they have, you know, they they have their semblance of weapons, obviously, with Lamb and Cooper and Elliott. I get that. But that kid played pretty damn well for a kid that never played. And you know what? That kid figured it out. That kid figured it out for a guy that's been in the league for four years that hasn't done a thing. Same thing with Mike White. You know, drafted out of Western Kentucky. Yeah, he played in a high-powered offense. He was throwing the ball over the place in college. So he's used to doing that. But still, these guys, they, these guys look like they belong. I haven't seen Daniel Jones look like he belongs. No, like nobody that. has. Nobody has. No. And you said it I'm, so eloquently a couple weeks ago. He he teases you with a throw here and a throw there and a play here and a run there. Three years in, you need to see it on a more consistent basis, and you haven't done it. And at a certain point, the excuses need to go out the window, and you need to accept the fact that maybe he's just not capable. I'm not going to sit here and say that Daniel Jones is a terrible quarterback because I think that's a gross overstatement. But is he the type of guy that is going to take a team on his shoulders when things are going awry or when you're lacking some skill positions due to injury or otherwise, or you don't have a great offensive line? Is he going to be the type of guy that says, don't worry, guys, I'm still playing quarterback. This is my team and I'll lead us. Because when you draft a kid number six overall, there's no excuses for that not to be the case in year three. And if it isn't the case in year three, then it wasn't the right pick. That's the way I look at it. I could be off base. There might be some people who disagree, but that's the way I feel. And judging by the monologue that you just had, I'm assuming you're in the same boat as me there. Listen, I've been in the same boat. I've only pre preached patience with the kid. I wanted to give him three full seasons, like, you know, guys like Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield and guys right. like that. And there you was know, also I, some other factors too. the fact that COVID and no OTAs last year. I mean, the kid right. did go no, through no some doubt. adversity. So no you doubt. wanted to give him a little bit of leeway. 
but now, all right, I, I'm, I'm seeing the fact that he has cut down on the turnovers. We've seen him cut down on the fumbles. We've seen all that. But I'm also not seeing that gunslinger mentality. I'm seeing a guy that's still playing tentative. I'm seeing a guy that, that refuses to throw to a guy through a tight space. Now, look, there, there, was one, there was one play in the second quarter where Tony could have helped him out a bit. Tony ran a, a, a slant route, and Jones put it a little low, but it was a very catchable ball. You got to catch that ball. Well, he, I think he had, to, he had to put it low. I think he had to put it low because of the placement of the defender. It, I thought that was a perfectly placed he ball. He did. It, it was a perfectly placed ball. It's a ball that Tony, if he just, you know, jumps in and, and probably dives to it a little bit, he didn't really have to dive much, but that's a play you got to make it. It would have yeah. extended chains on third down. It would have had the first down. And we continue their drive, and I think it would have been closer to fifty or the well, other. Well, and if you watch these shows and you watch these quarterbacks break down film, a lot of times, you know, the quarterbacks are not throwing to a receiver; they're throwing to a spot. They're, they're leading you spot. based on where the defenders are. So he's leading right. them because of where the defender is. Throw the ball low, dive forward, extend the chains, pick up a first down, and that's just you know that that'll be part of the maturation process for Tony. I think that you know. He'll learn from things like that. I'm not going to kill the kid over it. But again, there's just so many different plays throughout the course of a game that you can point to where, you know, how, how many times can you chalk up something to oh, one play could have went differently? Uh, all right. How many plays pile up on top of each other before you realize the fact, OK, this team is just not very good. And that's what I think no. the Giant fans need to come to a realization to now. And you you said it before the season, Rob. You, you weren't sugarcoating anything. You weren't looking at it with Giants colored glasses. You said it how it was. But I think other Giant fans need to come around to the fact that this is the boat that they're in. You're in a very uncertain place right now where even the things that you thought you had right and, this, and the foundation that you thought was in place, that's not so certain now either. And it's not a good situation. And it's not a good situation. And like I said before, I'm not saying you should have come into this season with expectations to make the playoffs. And I'm not saying that this team is good enough to be in the playoffs or that they should be in the playoffs. But the bottom line is, with that extra wild card spot and the mediocrity that is the bottom tier of the NFC, it's very top heavy. You got the first six teams that are all two losses or less. But that seventh wild card spot, if the season ended today, you'd have a three and four team going to the postseason. If the Giants win that game on Monday night, they're sitting there at three and five, a half game out. And you can actually have aspirations of potentially making a run. Again, I'm would, not would speaking a to the game talent against, level. Would a winnable game against the Raiders? Oh, extremely up. winnable game coming up. Yeah. Extremely winnable game coming up. And that's why that's what makes this loss sting so much is because it was handed to you on a silver platter. You found a way to lose, and now you're not in a good spot where you would have if you would have won the game. So and not let, a good me, week for the New York Giants. Heartbreaking just, week, to be honest. Let, let me say one more thing before let's, we'll move on to the Jets. I'm telling you right now, by the end of this season, it's time to jettison Barkley out of here. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough because, first of all, obviously the injuries, it's enough with the injuries. Unfortunately, the kid's getting injured. I mean, his last injury with the ankle, he stepped on a Cowboy player, I don't know if it was Diggs or somebody, ankle, he twists his ankle. But I'm tired of hearing, once Barkley gets back, and if Barkley is healthy, and when Barkley gets back, this will, no. Take that away. Let's take that entire element away from now on. Let's get rid of that element, and that's it. Go draft yourself a running back in the third and fourth round, because you know what, Andrew? There are plenty out there. The kid on the Jets just proved it, Michael Carter. 
The kid on the Broncos, Javante Williams. For, forget you about got, that. Look at what Devontae Booker was able to do for you. He's more than capable. Right. Devontae Booker, I thought, played a solid game. All right. Very been solid a, game. More of a veteran, I understand. But listen, you can get a running back in the third and fourth round, and they can be an all-pro. Get rid of the whole Barkley situation now. Get rid of it. I am tired of hearing it time and time again. Oh, once Barkley gets back, and Barkley will be back in two weeks, and once Barkley's healthy, and with a healthy Barkley, you know what? Take it away. Take the entire thing away, because you know what? It's negativity as far as I'm concerned. So if you have to cut your losses, cut your losses. If you only get a fifth-round pick from fine. I'm tired. Everybody telling me, but the talent level, but the talent level, you know, something, even when Barkley played, he didn't, you know, with the exception of that rookie season after that, even when he played, he didn't do a hell of a lot. So I'm tired of hearing the talent. What good is the talent level? If he's on the, if, if he's missing nine games a year, what good is the whole talent level? Then it means nothing. Just go get rid of him, please. For, for God's sake, I'm, that's why I'm hoping a new GM comes in because you know what? He's got no ties to Barkley. He'll have no ties to Jones. He'll have no ties to anybody. And I'm telling you right now, John Mara better give that guy full power because if he needs to get the coach out of here, then you do that. You can't bring in a GM and straddle him with this quarterback and coach if he doesn't feel like they're the right guys. You cannot. You can't no. bring in a GM to do that because as I told you guys in that text thread the other day, you're, 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 you're actually taking power away from the GM then. Because then I also feel like you'll have lesser candidates coming in for that job. You really will. So, look, do the Giants have some level of talent where they shouldn't? I mean, this is the fifth straight year, Andrew. They started out either two and six or one and seven. I mean, that's five straight years. Come on. It's miserable. That cannot happen. It's miserable. It cannot happen. It just can't. And these injuries here that they have, I understand his injuries throughout the NFL. But with the Giants, I, I, I don't know if it's a training, you know, whoever your strength and coordinator uh, um, coach is. I don't know what it is. But something's not working here. It's just not working. So, look, could move on to the Jets because at least that's, you know, there's some positivity there. And, uh, you know, Andrew, it's just the NFL, man. I mean, here you got the Bengals who beat the crap out of the Steelers on the road. The week before the Jet game, they beat the crap out of the Ravens uh, on the road. They come in to play the Jets, albeit I understand it's it's a Jet home game. And my God, it, 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 it's just <laughs> you tried to if tell anything, me this before I picked the Bengals. If anything you tried is to any me. given Sunday, I tried to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And yeah, I got mad. I got mad at you. Sunday. I got mad at you. Yeah. But you you're right. You know, there's a, there's, there's there's one thing. Uh, maybe this is going to be an unpopular take. I don't know how you're going to feel about this too. Um, you know, the, the main narrative here on, on talk radio and all over Twitter is, Oh, do the jets have a, a quarterback controversy now? I, I think you need to pump the brakes on that. Now our good pal, Tommy locks who scouts out these college players like no other. He actually said to us in a text thread the other day, he said, Mike white was an incredibly good quarterback in college. When he went to Western Kentucky, he has a rocket of an arm. They were in a pass-happy offense, and he has all the tools. So it's not like this kid just came from nowhere. Like, he actually has some talent level and a little bit of a collegiate resume to point to and say, oh, okay, this wasn't. This might not have been just a fluke. But we need to pump the brakes. You just took a quarterback second overall, and I know he has not been good. But the fact that controversy, can we let the guy Mike White play more than one game? 
And he looked very good. The first couple drives, they're holding his hand. It's dink and dunk. But then once he got his legs underneath them and got comfortable, that's when they started to open up the playbook. To me, the most important storyline from this game, and we heard this from Robert Sala, I believe he was on the, the K show, or he might have said it after the game during his press conference, because you saw so many layers to this offense that you have not seen in the first seven weeks with Zach yeah. Wilson. And evidently, Robert Sala said that Mike LaFleur was calling plays from upstairs in the coach's box instead of on the sidelines. And they asked why. And he said, well, because Mike didn't need him on the sidelines. Whereas Zach likes Mike LaFleur to be on the sidelines with him. Now that to me is a little bit concerning because you you really need the coach to hold your hand through the game. And maybe it's obvious. Maybe it's actually being a detriment in terms of the, the, the play calling and what LaFleur sees and how he reacts to what the defense is giving him. Because you saw an offense that was creative, that kept the defense on their heels, that controlled the pace of play for a good portion of the game. You have not seen that. I understand the quarterback's skill level has a lot to do with that. But you can't tell me that Mike White, you know, as good as you might have thought that he was at Western Kentucky, you can't tell me that there's anything that he brings to this table skill-wise that Zach Wilson does it that limits what you can call with Zach Wilson, whereas you can have an open well, playbook with Mike White. I, I don't I, buy that. So that's yeah, a little concerning well, to me. I, I got to, you know, look, there's a couple of ways to look at this. First of all, you know, Zach Wilson's a baby in this league right now. He's a baby. You know, Mike White still has four years experience in the NFL. And if you don't think sitting in a quarterback room, even if it was with the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Jets, you know, it, there's a lot of experience that comes from watching and, and speaking to other veteran quarterbacks on that team and speaking to coaches that have been around for a few years to gain that experience. Zach Wilson has not. So the fact that Zach Wilson wants Mike LaFleur on a sideline with him, I could understand that because the same thing that I spoke about with Justin Fields with the bears where Charlie Weiss took the bears coaching staff to task because Justin Fields was sitting on a bench by himself, distraught and nobody went up to the guy. Not one coach went up to the kid to talk to him. So if that's a comfort level with him, that's fine. The Jets came off a game against the Patriots where they got utterly embarrassed. I mean, they got embarrassed. They got taken to task. Uh, Joe Douglas got taken to task. Robert Salah got taken to task. The players got taken to task. And that's what I said to you a few weeks ago when, you know, teams as far as, you know, players tanking, they don't tank, man. They don't tank. These guys got their pride. And when they get in question, their work ethic and, and their ability to win games possibly, you know, when you get questioned as the way the Jets did that entire week, well, you know what? You come out fighting. And they came out fighting to the Jets. And not only that, but the coaching staff came out fighting. And the coaching staff just said, hey, listen, let's change it up here on offense. We can't be so vanilla. Let's, what, let's go balls to the wall. Whatever happens, happens. If Mike White can handle it, then he can handle it. Like you said, the beginning of the game was dink and dunk, dink and dunk. And then he found his way. He made a couple of beautiful throws. That one to Berrios in the end zone was a gorgeous throw, an absolutely beautiful throw. But you've seen the Jets even on a two-point conversion, you know, on that last drive when they scored the touchdown. They did a little bit of a, you know, a double, a double, fle- a double reverse pass to Mike White in the end zone. I mean, you know, these are things they don't normally see the Jets do. So they pulled out all the stops. Now, look, Zach Wilson had enough on his plate. Kid was getting beaten up. Offensive line wasn't playing well. But again, what does it go back to what I just said earlier, Andrew? Sometimes the quarterback makes the offensive line better. 
And the Jet offensive line looked terrific the other day. They looked terrific. And they weren't playing against scrubs. They were playing against one of the better defenses in the league the first seven weeks. So, again, it goes back to the quarterback. I've been saying this since last year with Daniel Jones. A quarterback can make the offensive line look a hell of a lot better than what they look. And Mike White did exactly that. What do you think Tom Brady has so much success for all the time? He gets rid of the ball. All the good quarterbacks get rid of the ball, rid of the ball. I don't see Daniel Jones getting rid of the ball. Mike White got rid of the ball. Quick, bang, it was out of his hands. Bang, out of his hands. Bang, out of his hands. Daniel Jones is looking, looking, it's attentiveness to him, and I think it goes back to all the turnovers he had in his first year and a half, first two seasons in a league. I think it's still in that kid's head not to turn the ball over, so he's not playing instinctively. Mike White went out there, and he played instinctively. It didn't matter to him. It didn't matter. So that offensive line all of a sudden looked a hell of a lot better because you know what? When you're pass blocking for a guy that gets rid of the ball in 1.3 seconds as opposed to a guy that's getting rid of the ball from two seconds or more, all of a sudden your offensive line doesn't look so good anymore. There's only so much they can sustain the blocking. So, And that's what Mike White did for the Jets the other day. And Michael Carter looked terrific, too, at running back. So they look like they, they drafted themselves a hell of a running back there. Uh, and the defense played well. I mean, you know, look, the Jets were losing that game at one point. They came back. And not for a, a really, you know, and listen, we could take the refs to task all day long because the refs really suck in every single NFL game that you watch every single week. But that was just a god-awful helmet-to-helmet call that they called on the Bengals that really they would have gave the, the Bengals the ball back with over two minutes left. That was undoubtedly the worst call I've seen in the NFL this season. It was disgusting. I, and, it was I, and, and I'm coming from a place as a Steelers fan where I saw that BS offsides call on a blocked field goal against Green Bay that completely flipped the script of that game. And, and that was legitimately the worst call I've seen all season on Mike Hilton. That, that, the, the officiating crew should be embarrassed of themselves for a call like that. Yeah. But I'm not going to take any credit away from the Jets. They played a complete game. Now, and I know I just said to pump the brakes on the quarterback controversy thing, but I will say this just for the sake of saying it. If during this stretch where Zach Wilson is going to be out, let's say for argument's sake, he's out for four weeks and Mike White plays four consecutive games, plays just the way he did on Sunday and goes four and oh, not only do you have a controversy, but secondly, if Mike White ends up being this guy, how poorly does that look on Joe Douglas's resume? The fact that he had this guy sitting here in the quarterback room and took a quarterback number two overall. I don't think it's an indictment on Zach Wilson because maybe Zach Wilson does grow and mature and blossoms into something special. You can't write the kid off at all or even make a definitive judgment on the kid after five games. But if you had this quarterback and Mike White sitting in the room and, and one, you know, you said sitting in quarterback rooms and how much that helps kids. Let's not forget that. The person who many people consider to be the brightest offensive coordinator in football right now who's going to be up for some head coaching vacancies in the offseason is Kellen Moore in Dallas. And he was in that same quarterback room as Mike White. I know Kellen Moore didn't play a lot, but quarter, there's a reason why Kellen Moore went from backup quarterback to quarterback's coach in a one-year span. He's incredibly bright. He's good at teaching. He's good at relaying information. I'm sure that probably played a lot into Mike White's hand and probably why he was so prepared on Sunday to get the job done. 
But God, if he is able to go on a run here and yeah, play effectively well, for a, look, for an extended period of time, that's going to look bad on the Jets front office. It really I, is. I understand, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's pump the brakes. This kid was still he was still a fifth round pick. You know, he, he was he was taken by the Dallas Cowboys. They let him go. I don't think Dallas seen all that much in him. Otherwise, maybe if they seen what everybody's seen on Sunday, maybe they don't sign Prescott to that forty plus million dollar deal. And they use Mike White, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I mean, but that's different, though. Uh, you know, Prescott we, we, is we an get, old pro. No, I, I understand that. But, you know, in 2018 and 2019, Prescott wasn't an old pro. Started coming into his own more last year where he had those big years like he's having. Uh, not late, Well, in the beginning of last year, I should say. And towards the tail end of 2019. And, of course, leading into this season. But, uh, look, the Cowboys let that kid go. He's a fifth-round pick. So we got to – we really have to pump the brakes – Let's see what happens Thursday night against the Colts. You know, because if this kid goes, you know, 17 of 34 and throws for 175 yards and the Jets lose the game, you know, all of a sudden the Mike White talk is going to, it's going to simmer down, stop. So let's see, let's, let's get to that point first before we start playing devil's advocate because you can't do that. Like I said, he's a fifth round pick. You know, it's very rare that you see a fifth round pick make it big in the NFL. Very rare. Now, I understand Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott himself were fourth-round picks. I get that. So that could happen. Mason but, Rudolph. Oh, God. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's very rare. There's a handful of guys you could say that for over the last 20 years. You know, that's really made an impact on the league, like guys like Wilson and Prescott have. So we got to pump the brakes a little bit. On no, I agree. I, that's, I preface what I said with pump the brakes. I just... For the sake of saying it, if if this kid goes on a run here in these next couple weeks, then you have a discussion. As far as the discussion going on right now, it's lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. Because like you said, too, it's any given Sunday. You you, you can't – this is why, we, you know, we, we had this discussion a couple weeks ago about, like, power rankings and the nature of them and just the overreaction to yeah, one game. You can't do it. Ridiculous. You those can't things, do it. I, I never look at those things. You can't do it. It's a All week-to-week right. week thing. There's a couple big, big time games on Sunday uh, in terms of the storylines behind them. And well, I wanted, to, I wanted to get into that. I wanted to get into that Packer Cardinal game from last yes. week as well. I know it was a Thursday night game, but I tell you, you know, it's amazing that this guy Aaron Rodgers has only won one Super Bowl. It really is because what he did that Thursday night against Arizona, I, I, and I tell you, Matt Lafleur, you got to give that guy all the credit in the world. He's a very, very underrated coach, Matt Lafleur. They called the perfect game. And Aaron Rodgers, who was basically playing with Amari, Amari Rodgers, uh, Sanquimius uh, uh, Brown, I mean, uh, uh, Randall Cobb out there, Robert Tanyan, who ultimately got hurt and, and tore his ACL in that third quarter. He had nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And Aaron Rodgers beats the 7-0 Cardinals. I mean, the 6-0, I was 6-0, 7-0 Cardinals. It, it's just... And he played a hell of a game, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, he played, I thought, one of his best games I've seen him play because of the situation. It's just amazing to me how this guy has had so many playoff failures in his career. And you see what this guy is capable of doing. It, it simply is amazing. It really is. Well, I think and, a lot of credit has to be given to Green Bay's defense, who picked up the slack and forced a couple of turnovers from Kyler Murray. Um, obviously not having DeAndre Hopkins at full strength was evident. He was in and out of that game all night receiving treatment on his hamstring. So he really didn't play a big role. He had one big catch down the sidelines, but for the most part, he was in and out of the game, could never get into a rhythm. 
they bottled up the running game. That two-headed monster of Edmonds and Connor has really been one of the underappreciated running back tandems in the league. They've been very, very yeah. effective, you know, uh, and they were pretty much a non-factor in this game. And when your number one target is, is I mean, your number one target in the receiving game was either Randall Cobb or Robert Tanya, and Robert Tanya was hurt. He went down with the ACL injury, and he was hurt. So there was no one in that game who had any sort of a resume in terms of Rodgers having the utmost confidence in it, big spots. But he played efficiently. They leaned on the running game. And I tell you, it wasn't Aaron Jones who led the charge in that running game. It was A.J. Dillon who beat up that Cardinals defense all night long. That was an incredible showing by him. And I predicted it. I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I just had a feeling this was a this was a type of game where Rodgers just he's not going to be outspoken about it during the week, but he's just going to give you that little smirk like, okay, yeah, count me out and let's see what happens. But again, it's just it's so strange because come playoff time, they've fallen short. It hasn't always been Rodgers fault. But for a quarterback that kind of always plays with a chip on his shoulders, you would think he'd have more to show for it because a lot of people do count them out because the lack of talent around them on a yearly basis. Because let's be honest with you, for the most part during his career, Green Bay has not had an immense amount of talent around him. They've been better in recent years, but it's just it's strange. But Arizona gets their first loss, and I tell you, Rob, I have a feeling – Arizona is going to come back down to earth here, and I wouldn't be surprised if a few weeks from now they're sitting at eight and four. Like they just give yeah, me serious. I don't see that. I don't see that. I just, I I've it. never, I've never thought they were that good. And if you look at Arizona's schedule come on up, coming up, they got the 49ers. And listen, I've, I've had my own criticisms about Jimmy Garoppolo, but the 49ers are a team that always seems to play Arizona tough. Arizona can never get their offense going against that San Francisco defense. You got another game against Carolina. Same. It's not the same defense. That, that defense is not the same. But it's a, it's it's a defense. It's a defense that held the Cardinals to 17 points. Their only game before Thursday night, their only game with under 30 points all season long, they held them to 17. They did an incredibly good job. And if not for Trey Lance, who was just god-awful in that game, the 49ers very easily could have won that game. But looking forward in Arizona's schedule, I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at this week, 10 a week 11 matchup with the Seahawks under the impression that Russell Wilson will be back in the fold. That's a tough game on the road against a pretty decent Chicago bears defense. It's a tough task. I don't see them sweeping the Rams. That's another game that they got to face on their schedule. They got the Seahawks twice, actually. Well, they got they the, the Dallas Panthers. Cowboys gotta... in Dallas on January 2nd. There's they, a lot of tough to games the on the Panthers. schedule. They have to, they have to play the Panthers the week after this. So they got the Panthers there. Seahawks don't impress me with or without Russell Wilson. They do not impress me. They do not have a running game. Cardinal defense is very good. They're very underrated. They sack the quarterback. You know, they're very good. They're fast. They get a lot of turnovers. So it's a good defense. But But I tell you, losing, losing, a lot of people disagree with me on this take, but losing J.J. Watt is a huge loss because he doesn't showing up in the stat column, but he's a guy that you have to worry about. And he's a guy who is disruptive, even if it doesn't amount to to sacks. You know, I I think, I, I think this is just the NFL. You know, and, and I think the Cardinals looking, I think the Cardinals actually took the Packers lightly, to be honest with you. I think that's what happened. And I think the Packers played their perfect game. And they also played a game where they said, okay, we have nothing to lose here. We're not supposed to win this game. You know, but Aaron Rodgers takes it upon himself. So, and again, I think the Cardinals, and look, look, the Cardinals, they could have easily won that game. It's not like they got blown out here. They could have easily won that game. And they were in position to win the game if A.J. Green would have been paying attention. That's a win. Let's not forget that. So we got to understand, they, they, were, they were five yards away from winning that game. 
you know, again, not for AJ Green, not paying attention, why he didn't turn around. I mean, I have no idea what was going on through his head. That's your boy, AJ Green. You love him. You're a big fan of his, aren't you? I can't stand that guy. I think the guy's the most overrated receiver in the league for the last 30 years. I just can't. I, I I just I don't see what it is about that guy. And was so so gun moving. gun to your head. Who wins the West? Do you think the Cardinals win it over the Rams? Yeah. Uh well, because I, I I would the, the game put my life savings the game on against, the Rams to win the division. The game against the Rams is going to dictate that. Obviously, the Cardinals win that game. They win the division. That's what it comes down to. They win that game. They win the division. I don't think they're going to win it going away, but. You know, it's it's going to come down to that game. Cardinals, Rams, that game. Cardinals beat them again. That's obviously, you know, they got the head-to-head there, beat them twice. It's actually a two-game swing. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to discount the Rams by any means. But, uh, look, I, I, I still think the Cardinals are a very good team. I don't think they're a team that's going to be 8-4 and four in the next, uh, you know, three, four weeks. I, I just don't see that. I don't see it. They got too many weapons on offense. They got a terrific, like you said, one-two punch with Connor and Edmonds. They got some very good receivers. And Hopkins has been hobbled, which has hurt them a bit offensively. Let's not forget that. He only played 15 plays, Hopkins. And a lot of those plays, Hopkins came back on on his own. You know, they didn't ask him to come in. Hopkins ran onto the field by himself. So he only played 15 plays that game, which hurts them immensely on offense. Let's, let's, you know, let's not, you know, Hopkins is a top three receiver in the league here. So, and again, like I said, they were five yards away from winning that game. So the fact that everybody thinks that the Cardinals, oh, the Cardinals are going to come back down to earth. Well, again, that was a game that was in their hands. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, the Steelers won a big game. We could touch on that for a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, look, typical uh, uh, AFC North game, Steelers and Browns. Browns have their problems right now, Andrew. They just cannot get the ball downfield. You know, look, I understand you have a, a wonderful running back in Nick Chubb. Uh, Hunt has been hurt, which definitely hurts them. Hurts their third down ability, uh, you know, to get him out of the backfield hunt or to just have that transition from Chubb to Hunt. It's a terrific one-two punch. He'll be back in a couple of weeks, Hunt. Uh, but they have nobody, nobody that they can get the ball downfield to. I, you know, Mayfield is not, is not making plays. Uh, and the Browns, yeah, their defense is good. But again, you know, that was a winnable game for the Browns and it was a huge game. And the Steelers came out and, and they won that game. Listen, it was it was a war of attrition in that game because Roethlisberger did not look good once again. And I read a stat that on 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 passes 20 yards or more downfield, he's under 25%, by far the worst in the league. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem for them. When you have guys like Deontay Johnson and James Washington and 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 Chase Claypool, uh, that's a problem when you can't get the ball downfield like that. And we've been talking about the dink and dunk Roethlisberger and You're starting to see why he doesn't have that ability to connect on downfield throws. And there were a couple of plays. He had Deontay Johnson downfield open down the sideline. Missed them badly. So, uh, look, the Steelers do it on defense. They did it with a running game. Najee Harris had a good game. Steelers defense was terrific. And the Browns just don't do enough offensively. And we're going to see, look, we're going to see what happens here this Sunday when the Bengals have to play the Browns. We'll get into that in a few minutes, but I just wanted to touch on that Steeler game real quick. I know you were pissed off because Tomlin obviously, I mean, here's a guy that, you know, all you Steeler fans are all, and even I say it myself because, look, I, I root for the Steelers on, on Sundays. My brother-in-law, my, my nephew, they're all big Steeler fans. So, you know, I, I root for them. 
and I like the Steeler organization, professional organization. So, so I'll root for them. I have no problem with that. But you know, you, you look at Tomlin, and for all the criticism he takes on fourth and one and not going for it, he fakes a punt on in a three-three game. He fakes a field goal in a three-three game on the nine-yard line. It's incredible. You can't even make it up. Kick of, gets his kicker blown out and, and out of the game. <laughs> and does it, you don't have a kicker for the rest of the game in a divisional yeah. rivalry where you tied 3-3 and you fully had the expectation. As soon as that game started, you thought that that was going to be a one-possession game and you go forward without a kicker because you're a moron. If you're going to go for it, which I didn't agree for going, with it, going for it in the first place, to me, you take the points when you're in a tightly contested game like that. But if you're going to go for it, do it with your offense. Don't do it with a fake field goal. It was just, it was moronic altogether. But look, I mean, you said it best. Roethlisberger is ineffective. Pittsburgh's won three games in a row now, and it has not been because of the passing game. It's been because of the running game. The running game has been very good. The offensive line is doing exactly what I expected them to do. I expected them to gel and get better as time went on, and they are. They're still a little shaky in pass protection, but in terms of the run blocking, they've been phenomenal. And Harris is just a guy that does not go down when he's first contacted. I mean, he gets it at the line of scrimmage, he's still gaining three, four yards, which I think is huge because it sets up manageable third downs when you do that. When you're able to establish the run on your first two snaps, it, picks, it makes up a manageable third downs. Uh, I just wish that they would stop trying to incorporate the other journeyman scrap heap running backs that they have on the roster. But who am I? I'm just a, a guy with a microphone and a podcast. But look, the defense and is going to keep them in games. And if you're able to control the clock with the running game, you're able to keep that defense fresh so that they don't get overworked. Because if you look at the games that they've lost and the defense has not been good, the Raiders game and the Bengals game. And I know they didn't have TJ Watt in those games because of injury, but also the defense, they were, they were battered and bruised and fatigued. They were on the field because the offense could not sustain any sort of drives. So if you're able to incorporate the running game and control the clock, dictate the pace of play, the defense becomes fresh and you're able to, to, to start making those splash plays on defense to create those turnovers and flip the field, which they were able to do on Sunday with the Browns. Big fumble that Jarvis Landry had in that game that really kind of changed the, the complexion of that game. So, I mean, my expectations for this team are not that much higher than they were in the beginning of the season. I think they're a team that's going to be in a mix come December. They're going to be right in the thick of things, playing meaningful football at the end of the season, which is really all you can ask for given the circumstances of this team. But another big win against an AFC North opponent and, you know, fortunately, like I said, they were playing an AFC North opponent and the Bengals, you know, falling short against the Jets. So things look a hell of a lot better in the standings uh, on Monday morning. So uh, all in all, a good week for them. Yeah. And the Titans suffered a major injury there with Derrick Henry. That kind of takes away everything they love to do on offense. You know, that's a big, big injury because they have nobody to replace. Him. They signed Adrian Peterson this week. And, you know, who Adrian Peterson is like Michael Myers in these Halloween movies. The guy just constantly reappears. There's always a sequel with him. It's unbelievable. I, it's crazy. You know, I, who knows what he's got left in the tank, Adrian Peterson. I mean, what else did they got that? They signed Dante Foreman, who's been a, a cast off with many teams uh, in, in his career. And uh, yeah, they got Jeremy McNichols. I mean, so I don't know what they're going to do here, but, you know, that running game set up their downfield passing game where A.J. Brown has been, you know, it's coming back uh, to finally, you know, is, uh, you know, the career, the season he had last year, last couple of weeks here. And, you know, you don't know where it's going to take the Titans now, but they did, they did win a big game against the Indianapolis Colts the other day, but 
they did lose Henry looks like probably for the season with that foot fracture. So, uh, you know, that, that's a big loss there, really big loss. But, you know, one thing I want to touch on real quick too, was just, you know, the, you, you look and all of a sudden you turn around and the Patriots are four and four and watch out. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, watch out because their defense has looked terrific. Mac Jones has looked terrific. Mac Jones does not look like any sort of a rookie quarterback here. That guy looks like a seasoned veteran. They got a terrific running game going with Damian Harris. I mean, man, they're starting to put it together, the Patriots. So watch out. They're a little bit of a sleeper over here. A little bit of a sleeper. And they lost a couple of tough games. You know, they lost that tough game to the Buccaneers. They lost a tough game to the Cowboys. They could have easily been easily been six and two. So watch out for the Patriots. Just be careful on, on, on you know. So look, let's get into uh Week nine, I know you wanted to touch on a couple of game, a couple of games there. Which ones do you want to touch on first that you were looking at? That you know the intriguing matchup. Are you looking at the Jets Colts with the Mike White? Uh... I think it is. I think it is because of the of the storyline as far as QB is concerned. Because like I said before, if you if he starts to string together a couple of games here where he's effective and they start winning games, um, you know, then an issue kind of arises. But you know, like you said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But that's a that's a the Jets games are going to be ones that I'm looking at moving forward just to see, you know, what ends up happening. If Mike White comes in here and just shits all over himself on, on Thursday night, then I think we could put that to bed. And then you're hoping that Zach Wilson comes back from the injury and the timetable that was given. And you're hopeful that his different perspective from the sidelines is going to propel him to maybe develop a little bit better and, and play a little bit more effectively down the stretch. So that's a game that I'm, I'm certainly looking at Browns and Bengals. I think to me might be the most intriguing game of the week, just simply because both teams are right in the thick of things. And both teams have something to prove and are looking to rebound from really bad losses. Because I know that you and I both on this podcast thought that the Steelers had a good shot of winning, but as far as the general public was concerned, everyone in their mother, was on the Cleveland Browns to win that game because they just don't have any confidence in Pittsburgh's offense, rightfully so, because they stink. But also, I mean, how many knockout pools were just completely gutted this week because the Bengals lost to the Jets? I know that I was one of those victims. I was was a victim of it too. So, you know, so everyone was on the Bengals too, and they're going to have to come back with something to prove after a, a gutting loss like that. So that's a game I'm looking forward to. Well, that's where you'll see. That's where you'll see who the Bengals are. Like I said, you know, they. I, I think, look, the Jets beat them. I, I think that was an aberration game for, for the Bengals. I think what we've seen with the Pittsburgh game and the Baltimore game on the road, those games that they won, even that Packer game that they should have won, actually, in Cincinnati, they should have won that game. Uh, not for their kicker, but um, I think you'll see more of the Bengals team on, on, on Sunday against the Browns, really who they are. Uh, and the Browns, to me, Andrew, I, I tell you, I think they got some problems. They, they got problems, not so much on the defensive side of the, of the ball, but offensively. I mean, now they sent Beckham home, basically told him, stay away from the team. We don't want you. You know, there's all sorts of issues going on there. His father was filming, was uh, sending videos out of, you know, plays where Odell Beckham was open on the field and wasn't getting the, the ball thrown to him. And, you know, then, you know, you've seen that game against Pittsburgh where the fourth quarter, with the Browns driving, uh, you know, Mayfield throws a beautiful ball over the middle and Beckham bails out, bailed out, stopped, stopped because he didn't, he was afraid of getting hit. And you got a guy like Mayfield playing with a torn labrum in his non-throwing shoulder, playing injured in that game. And you got Beckham bailing out. And, you know, that's a, that was a bad look in that game. 
bad look for Beckham. So they not, sent him home. Not, not to mention that he's playing, but also there was that one play where Mayfield scrambled for the first down, first down, got his bell rung down the sidelines, and yeah. gets up on his feet and fist pumps and pumps the yeah. crowd up and just shows yeah. you he's a warrior. And that's why I've always yeah. liked Baker. I, I really hate the fact that he's wearing a Cleveland Browns uniform because I have to root against him. But that's what I've always liked about him. So definitely not a good look for Odell. Uh, a third game that would have been on the docket was Packers Chiefs, but obviously that game is a hell of a lot different now with Aaron Rodgers testing positive for COVID. I don't think out. so. I don't think so. You think so? I don't think so. I'm telling you. That game's still going to be intriguing because I want to see what Jordan Love can do. Look, they drafted this kid in the first round where it pissed well, it's off still, Aaron Rodgers. It's still intriguing, it's, but it's, it's not, intriguing it's, it's not box office anymore. Aaron Rodgers I, versus I Pat Mahomes was box office. I think it is. I, I Listen, I, I understand. You know, you're going by the name brand of Mahomes and Rodgers. I get it. But I still think it's an intriguing game to watch because I still think this is going to be a game. I mean, with the way the Chiefs have played, they're not showing you that that they're correcting any of their mistakes. And look, they took 12 penalties the other night against the Giants. Some of them were one worse than the other. And I know we talked about some of the penalties the Giants took, but the Chiefs took some egregious penalties, man. And they turned the ball over. Kelsey fumbled. Mahomes fumbled. He threw a couple of interceptions. He threw a couple of more that should have been intercepted. So, you know, I still think this is an intriguing game. And I've been dying to see what Jordan Love can do. So well, as I'm I, as I'm actually going through all the games on the slate this week, and you're probably right, because I don't think any of it and any of the other games have any luster to it. Well, Arizona, San Francisco. Arizona, San Francisco is a good game for sure. And, and I'm going to tell you the other one. And only for the fact that I want to see how they bounce back. And I want to see what the Chargers can do in Philadelphia. I knew you were going to say this. I don't, yep. I don't think Philadelphia is that good of a team. They blew the doors off the lines. We'll talk about that in the three-point segment because that was oof. But, yep. uh, you know, I, I want to see how the Chargers bounce back because I'll tell you the truth, Justin Herbert has not looked good the last couple of weeks. No, he hasn't. He was actually limited in practice today with a hand injury. So yeah, with a throwing right, hand injury. He'll, so. he'll play. You know he'll what? That play. was a that was Sunday was a crucial spot for the Chargers coming off a yeah. bye week after getting their asses handed to them. I really yep. thought that they were a big time bounce back candidate and they yep. fell flat on their faces again. And if not for a garbage time touchdown, you know, the game is not as close as a score appears. They only lost 27, 24, but that's because of a last second touchdown. New England dominated that game from the very onset. So this is going to be a big week for the Chargers and the Eagles are coming in with a little momentum after blowing the doors off Detroit. So that's certainly an interesting game too. All right. Enough talk about what could be. Let's talk about what will be. And let's get to our picks. I think that was just uh, probably the best segue that could have ever been dreamt of. But, you know, who am I to toot my own horn? So, well, listen, I finally took I finally took a couple to the chin. Yes, yes, he did. You wore them. You wore them. But you're a man of honor. You wear it. And I'm confident that you'll bounce back because that's the kind of guy you are. So Rob takes his first, his very first, his inaugural three point loss. He was six and oh with his three point picks. Looked to make it 7-0 and by taking the Lions plus 3.5. He was confident that if there was a game they were going to win, it was going to be this one. He even went as far as to say the three underdogs that he picked, you could parlay them on the money line and make a nice little chunk of change. Yeah, That, that didn't, didn't work, work out. Well. The Steelers went out right. Uh, <laughs> the Bears were in that game against San Fran until the very end, and then obviously San Francisco pulled away. So that game was close for a while. But the Lions, I mean, I texted you, I think it was – Close to the half, I texted you asking if you were regretting that pick, and you said, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes, a lot of game left. And then I think a half hour later, you were like, all right, oofa, this game is out of reach. So uh, of reach. all in all, Rob goes one and two, and he only picks up one point. His one-point play, Steelers plus three and a half cashes. Thank God so, I salvaged it with your Steelers. You salvaged it. Hey, the Steelers have been your saving grace. 
well, not really. You've gone, I can't say saving grace because you're, you were undefeated with your three point plays, but every time you pick the Steelers, I feel like they've, they're, they're coming through for you. Even when I'm not necessarily on board with the pick, they've been pretty good to you. You got to um, kind of pick and choose your spots with the Steelers. I learned that from you, my friend. And, and if there's one little phrase that I can give about my week of pick them, it's in Cooper rush. We trust. In Cooper Rush, we trust. So I, full transparency. And it's I no, the, there's no changing lines here. No, no, no. You know what? You were right. You were right. And I was mad at myself after I sent it, and I realized that's not the type of person I am. I should have never even opened my mouth. So full transparency. I picked the Cowboys as, well, first of all, Packers plus six and a half, my one-point play. That cashes. Bengals minus ten and a half. I mean, they're up by 11 with three minutes left in the game. I thought they had a good chance to cover. Then they ended up losing outright. That was just disgraceful. But then my three-point play was Cowboys minus minus one and a half. And I took this on Wednesday night when we record, when I was under the impression Dak Prescott was going to play, Rob even asked, Hey, is Dak going to play? And I said, as far as I know, he said during a press conference early in the week that he was fine and he was confident. Um, but you know, it was a true game time decision. Obviously there was a little bit of concern. So they decided to err on the side of caution. So Cooper rush came in and the line ended up moving almost five points. I mean, they, they, I think the line closed with the Vikings as four point favorites on Sunday night football. And I texted Rob. I said, hey, so being that I'm with the Cowboys and I can't switch my pick to any other game because pretty much all the other games have been played already, do I at least get the updated line? And he says, no, in Cooper Rush, you trust. And I said, you know what? You're right. Why did I even open my mouth? That's a shameful thing to do, dishonorable thing to do. So I stuck with my guns, Cowboys minus one and a half, and I ended up winning the game by four. And I cashed my three-point play. So all in all, Rob goes one and two, picks up a point. I go two and one, and I pick up four points. So a three-point swing this week. I am now 11 and 10 with 20 points. Rob is 11 and 10 with 26 points. Again, point distribution is the name of the game. Rob's done a tremendous job at distributing his points. And I picked up a little bit of ground. So hopefully I can keep up momentum. But as I alluded to early on the show, Rob, this week is just disgusting. And again, full transparency, one of my plays that I had my eye on is no longer in effect because now Aaron Rodgers is out with COVID. So my feel on that game just totally goes out the window and that's off the board. So I'm going to be perfectly honest with you right now. I'm going to be picking games on the fly. I have one game that I think I have down on the money and that's my three point play. I'll just put it out there. Now my one and my two, I'm going to take on the fly here. I'm just taking them on the fly. Yeah, I got my three solidified. I had them. You have them? Okay. I, I, only, I only got them solidified when we started this podcast. When I looked, three games stood out to me that I really liked, and I had, you know, different reasons why in my head. So Okay. All right. So being that I had the better week. Uh, wow. It sounds nice to say that. I'm usually not yes. saying that I had the better week. Congratulations. Good. I'm, I'm on, on top of the world now, partner. What did I say? You popped your cherry? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I popped my pickup cherry. Of course. <laughs> So I'll start things off with my one-point play. Rob will follow up with his one and his two. I'll give my two and my three, and Rob will close it out with his three-point play. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Let's go. My one-point play. And you just mentioned this is a game that you you found intriguing. I, I can't see this team dropping three in a row. A team that I once thought was the team to beat in the AFC, and that's the Los Angeles Chargers. They go on the road against the Philadelphia Eagles. Does that win over Detroit, over the lifeless Lions, make me feel any differently about the Philadelphia Eagles? No. No. I, I think Sirianni is lacking in a lot of areas as a head coach. Jalen Hurts is not a good quarterback. And this week, 
funny enough, Rob's always been saying how, yeah, he ends up racking up garbage time fantasy points, but he's not a good quarterback. Well, this week, he didn't even rack up the garbage fantasy points. They had four touchdowns, all of them on the ground, and Hurts didn't have any of them, and I was forced to start him in fantasy because Lamar Jackson was on a bye. That's neither here nor there. I don't think that win against the Lions moves the needle for me for the Eagles. I still think the Chargers are a much better team. One and a half is essentially a pick em. I expect the Chargers to cover in this game, win pretty easily. They need a bounce back here. They need a bounce back because with the Chiefs winning on Monday night, and then they go into a matchup with the Packers without Aaron Rodgers, that becomes a winnable game in what looked like a gauntlet of a schedule for Kansas City. The Raiders have a hand in lead in that division right now in first place, and we'll see what happens this week when they play the New York Giants. And they obviously have a lot going on right now. We'll get touch on that in a minute. But this is a must-win game for the Chargers. So they're going to come out. I think they're going to be firing on all cylinders. I expect them to cover that one and a half. So Chargers minus one and a half is my one-point play. All right. So I'm going to Cincinnati. And I believe in the Bengals. I believe in the Bengals because I think that game was an aberration against the Jets. You know, coming off that, that destruction of the Baltimore Ravens, mixed in with the fact that they have another divisional game that was sandwiched, uh, the Jet game sandwiched in between those two games where they're playing the Browns this week. I kind of think that the Bengals really should, could have won that game against the Jets. As good as the Jets played, as great as Mike White was, Jets deserved to win that game. But at the same time, as you mentioned, Bengals did have a lead in that game. And also, they were two and a half minutes away from probably getting the ball back, if not for such a piss-poor call by the referee on that helmet-to-helmet hit. That was not a helmet-to-helmet hit. So let's face it. So, you know, look, Burrow has been terrific for them. Got off to a slow start against the Jets. He did not play well in that first quarter and a half. Then started turning it on right before halftime in the second half. He got it going with Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, you know, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon. Defense, you know, defense has been good up until that check game. It's been very good. So I'm a believer in the Bengals, and I have not seen much from the Browns standing. I mentioned that to you. Mayfield's not getting the ball downfield. You know, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Anthony Schwartz, Rashad Higgins, that's what they're throwing. Austin Hooper, you know, there's not much going on downfield. And I think that that one-two punch of Hunt and Chubb, they're missing because you only have Chubb. And I understand Dearness Johnson was there, scored a touchdown the other day against the Steelers, the long touchdown that the Browns scored. But, you know, the Browns' inability to move the ball and to get any sort of traction offensively has been a problem all year. So this is not something that just that just surfaced with the game against Pittsburgh. So I think going into Cincinnati, Cincinnati has their way with the Browns. I know it's a divisional game, but I, I, I really do like the Bengals in this game, minus a two and a half. I'm taking the Bengals over the Browns. Now, my two-point pick. I'm now, now, just I'm just going to, while, while you're on that pick, I'm just going to give you another stat here. Cleveland is letting their opponents score touchdowns when they get in the red zone at a 70% clip. It's 26th in the league. The Bengals, one of the things we said about Joe Burrow and company, they always score when they get into the red zone. Oh, yeah. Now, on the flip side of things, Cincinnati's defense is actually pretty good in the red zone. And Cleveland has not been good in the red zone. And you can look at that game against Pittsburgh where they had six drives where they got into Pittsburgh territory and only got seven points out of it. Yeah, right. there's, there's definitely a problem there. There's a problem there offensively. So, so, just making you feel a little bit more confident about your yeah, one-point no, play. Listen, I feel, you know, I feel I, like you need to pick me up after you, that you miserable look, week last week. That's fine. We, we come right back. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't cry about it. Listen, there's 18 years. What have we got, 18 weeks? Or 17 weeks we'll be picking for you. Because if we miss the first week, you're yes. going to have a bad week. If yeah. I go 18 straight weeks of, of perfection, my God. I mean, just, you know, build a statue of me in front of, uh, in front of a casino. <laughs> 
But you know, my two-point pick, I, I'm going. I'm going with you. I, I'm going with the Chargers. I think this is a big bounce-back game for the Chargers here. Um, I, I kind of think that they've been better. They're a better team than what they've been playing. Justin Herbert has not played well the last couple of weeks, but doesn't mean he's a bad quarterback. It just look look last last year too. The Patriots had his number. Patriots had his number last week as well. So sometimes, you know, a, a team just has your number, and Bill Belichick knows how to curtail uh, Justin Herbert's game. And again, like you said, Andrew said it well. Look, the Eagles are not as good as they played against the Lions. It was the Lions. The Eagles ran the ball. I think Justin Hurts threw for maybe 110 yards total. So Sirianni must have been uh, must, must have been hearing his podcast because I've been saying all along, how are you not running the ball? All of a sudden, Miles Sanders goes down, their best running back, and all of a sudden they decide to run the ball, which they did. Jordan Howard came off the scrap heap as he usually does, scores two touchdowns. Boston Scott had two touchdowns. They didn't even use Kenneth Gainwell, who everybody thought was going to be the bell cow there. They didn't even use him. So they basically controlled that game from the get-go. They didn't even have to let Hurts do anything. He did a little damage with his legs. But I think this game here, everything comes back to fruition. I think the Eagles uh, are not a match for this Chargers team. Although the Eagles do play well defensively, they defend the pass well, which the Chargers do. But the Chargers also have a running game with Austin Eckler. And I think they kind of open it up on the Eagles here. And, and I think they get back to their winning ways. So I'm taking the Chargers with my two-point pick. Like your one-point pick, minus one and a half Chargers. All right. Oh, man. Now, I told you that my one and two-point picks were going to be on the fly. The Chargers one I was pretty confident in, but I wasn't sure if I was going to pull the trigger. I did. My two-point play. I'm scared of no matter what direction I go here. Oh, man. All right, so I'm going to give you the two plays that I'm tossing around for my two-point play, and I know no matter which one I pick, it's going to bite me in the ass. And funny enough, we live in New York City. The two plays I'm tossing around right now is Jets plus 10.5 on Thursday night and Giants plus 3 against the Raiders on Sunday. Now, now go ahead. Are you going to add something? Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. I was going to say, I actually like the Giants, but I would not take them. You know, I like, my I like the Giants too, and I think one thing that's going to make a huge difference is, uh, you know, what happened with Henry Ruggs. And I know we didn't really go into a lot of detail on that, but obviously he was involved in a fatal car accident on Sunday. He was driving drunk, uh, blood alcohol level, twice the legal limit, was going 120 plus miles per hour, crashed into a Toyota, killed a woman and a dog, and he's going to jail with a DUI uh, resulting in death. He had a loaded firearm in the car, so possession of a weapon, and also reckless driving. So he's going to be behind bars for a long time. He's never playing NFL football ever again, and the Raiders released him. And Ruggs has actually been a very important part of that offense because everyone complains about Derek Carr not being able to stretch the ball down the field. Well, he actually has been able to stretch the ball this year. Henry Ruggs has a 30-plus yard catch in five out of their seven games this year. He's been a real big component of that Raiders offense. I think it's going to be a big loss. However, the Giants just always seem to find ways to lose games. So I'm going to steer away from that. And I'm going to go with the Jets plus 10.5 as my two-point play on Thursday night. I said I've always oh, been able to pick primetime games pretty well. He's a Mike White well. believer here, I'm baby. a Mike White believer. I'm buying into the hype. Zach Wilson is going to be Josh Rosen 2.0. Starting job taken. Bounces from team to team. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration. But 
I just think ten and a half is is a really big spread for this game. I, I don't think the Colts are that good of a team. Now, I ultimately, and I've been on record, I said this in a text thread, don't be surprised if Indianapolis wins this division because I'm not a firm believer of the Tennessee Titans without Derrick Henry. I think Derrick Henry is the heart and soul and everything about that team revolves around Derrick Henry. Not having him takes a lot away from that team. So Indianapolis could win this division by default, but I just don't think they're that good of a team. Carson Wentz has proven once again he's just incapable of ever giving up on a play. Stupid decision-making led to them losing that game. Could have very easily beat Tennessee, but they didn't solely because of Carson Wentz. You have a Jets defense that has been opportunistic at times, has shown in stretches, although not consistently, but in stretches that they can get pressure on the quarterback. And How do you beat Carson Wentz? Get him under pressure, force him to make bad decisions. I also think you're not going to be dealing with any sort of elements. You're playing indoors in Indianapolis. I think that Mike White is a little bit comfortable. And also, I think a short week could benefit the Jets here because I think they're still riding the momentum of that big game. So I actually think the short week could be semi-beneficial for them. Still riding the wave of that big-time win against a real good team. They're getting 10.5 points. I expect them to hang around. That's over two scores for me. I'll always side with that, especially when I don't think the Colts are that good of a team. So I'm going to take the Jets plus 10.5, and, and that's my two-point play. My three-point play. And this is the one that I knew I had in the vault from the very start of this segment. And I'm going to stick to my guns. And I just, I love this pick. And I hate the fact that I love it. Well, you're, that's it. That's my three point pick. What? You just, you, just, you just said, I hate the fact that I love it. And I love the pick myself. Okay. So maybe, um, maybe, and, are we going with the same pick? I think so. I'm taking uh, one of the teams that are rivals of my favorite team. Yeah, with my three-point play. And I'm going with the Baltimore Ravens as six-point yeah. favorites against the Minnesota Vikings. That's my, that's my pick, my friend. Okay. So then we can break down this game in, in conjunction with one another since we're both in lockstep. These are both our three-point plays. So I just no think the Minnesota Vikings, just not a good football team. Again, everything has to be in, in sync. and in, Like, it has to be constructed a certain way in order for Kirk Cousins to succeed. You saw it firsthand in that primetime game. Even though he was at home, it was primetime. He didn't have a good game. Now you have him on the road against the Baltimore Ravens, a team in Minnesota who cannot stop a nosebleed. Lamar Jackson is, has had his best passing performance so far in the league in his first couple of games. He's been able to pass from the pocket. He hasn't been tucking it and running as much after his first read is not there. They're using the running back by committee, changing pace back there in the backfield. It's been pretty effective for them. And I think this defense can pretty much cause fits for Kirk Cousins and company. And they're at home. I think the Ravens, after a bye week, bounce back from getting their asses handed to them by the Cincinnati well, that's, Bengals. That's, that's one of the main things is that I felt like they have two weeks to stew. They had two weeks to stew over that utter obliteration that the Bengals put on them in that 41-17 blow-up. So I, 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 that's where I'm looking at the Ravens, too, because I think they are pissed off about that. And another thing we got to look at, too, is the Minnesota Vikings. Look, they, they were getting a lot of sacks to Vikings, but they lost their best defensive lineman and best sacker in, in Daniel Hunter uh, the other night. So he's going to be out as, as it, well. It's a, it's a torn peck for him? Torn yeah, peck. so he, he's done. I mean, he's out. That's it. I think he's done for the season with a torn peck. So that's, that's a big, huge loss for the Vikings as well. I just don't think – I mean, I think the Vikings can kind of score on the Ravens because you can throw the ball against the Ravens. And the Vikings have shown to have a passing game, but I just feel like – the Ravens at home after that, I mean, again, it was an obliteration that was put upon them. Two weeks to sit back 
and have to suck that up, you know. And and they're at home again, Baltimore. They didn't have to travel anywhere or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I I love the Ravens. As soon as I seen it, I knew that was my three. I tell you, I was jockeying a little bit between them and the Chargers as my three point pick. To be honest with you. And I just said, you know what? I I, I just feel like this is a you know, 37, 24 Viking win. Um, a Raven win. I really do. So it's going to come down to that to that third play. You got Bengals minus two and a half, and I have the Jets plus ten and a half. Those are the only picks we're differing on. We both got the Chargers. We both got the Ravens. So we're not going to see too much movement in the standings this week. But I mean, hey, this is the way we feel about the game. So this is the way we're riding. You got to have yeah. As soon as you said you hated you hated this pick, I said, hey, he's taking the Ravens. That yep. that was my yep. pick. I hate the fact that I love. See now, I don't hate the fact that I love it because I think it's going to bite me in the ass. I hate the fact that I love it because I hate the Ravens. Let's just clear that up. I love the line. I love the wow. spot. And I think they kick Minnesota's ass. But you know, I just I hate rooting for the Ravens. I'm not going to root for the Ravens. Believe me, I'm not going to be, especially with you picking them as your three-point play too. Now I'm not going to lose sleep if they lose because I'm also not going to lose any any ground. That <laughs> You're not going to lose here. any ground. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> if if things go according to plan, that will be the worst three-point pick of the century. Yeah, I looked at it some other games and it was just difficult. You know, that Bronco Cowboys. And, I, I, you know, let me just touch on one thing real quick with the Broncos. I understand this guy it, it really hasn't impressed anybody as far as his quarterback play the chances that he's been given. But my God, could you just get Teddy Bridgewater out of there and put, <laughs> Drew, Lock, and put Drew Lock in, please? I agree. I agree. I mean, it's just they have too many weapons on that offense just to go by the wayside. Vic Fangio is another guy. You were right, Andrew. You said he might be the guy to get fired, uh, uh, first coach maybe to get fired. That offense is god-awful, and it shouldn't have to be. Between Gordon and Williams at running back with Cortland Sutton, Tim Patrick, Terry Judy came back, Noah Font. You have weapons there. My, I cannot take watching a game with Teddy Two Gloves Bridgewater. I just, <laughs> Teddy Two Gloves. I like that. <laughs> I, I can't take it. it. It drives me bonkers to watch this guy. And, uh, uh, he's and, a, and he's Tommy's draft prospect, Albert O, the tight end. Well, he's going to be starting because Font's out with he's the fan, COVID yeah. now. Yep. So Albert O will be playing in that yep. game. But could you just please, my God, just make the move. I'd rather see Drew Locke slinging it down the field trying to get the ball to these guys deep or doing something than watching Teddy Bridgewater either hold the ball or throw a four-yard pass. I, I, oh, my God. It drives me insane. It drives me insane. So, yeah, that offense know, has not been good. And I think no, it hasn't you're seeing what the Broncos are, what they were. They are what they are. I mean, they beat up on some bad teams early in the season. They got another win against a bad team in Washington. They face any sort of competition. They just don't belong on the same field. So – I think right, the Raiders so and the Broncos uh, are what they are. Let's touch on the World Series for a few minutes, even though it's probably the last thing we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to have an interesting take on this. And uh, maybe maybe you'll agree with me after I put this out there. I, I made peace with it. When the Braves went up 3-1, I made peace with it, realizing that this was going to be a realistic possibility and that they were likely going to win the World Series. And, you know, I, I let it simmer and – and I was okay with it. I mentally prepared for them winning the World Series. So once they did, I was fine with it. You know, I watched them raise the trophy and all that. It didn't really bother me because I was already mentally prepared. I think this is a beneficial thing, actually. I really do. Because I think the Mets can now – if if the overarching problems with this team weren't evident enough by the way they fell flat on their face, to watch a team in their own division that actually went out and made moves at the deadline, to see them go out there and win the World Series when they clearly were not the most talented team in the postseason race, I think it's going to alert 
the Mets front office and whoever they bring in for their baseball ops job and GM job, whoever they bring in as their manager. And I think the players now too are finally going to realize, all right, enough with team chemistry, enough with being upbeat, enough with all this nonsense. We got to go out there and win because the Phillies had an off year. The Marlins just have so many star-studded arms in that rotation. Don't be surprised if the Marlins are one of those teams that might be spending in free agency once the CBA is all figured out. Okay, the Nationals are in a rebuild phase. You're going to forget about them, but the Nationals always kind of are a thorn in the Mets' side anyway, even after they traded everybody. So, I mean, they got a lot of work to do, and I think maybe a team in their division going out there and winning the World Series lights a fire under their ass. And I also saw something today that should make Mets fans – and the Mets front office, nauseous, is that now since 2003, every single team in the NL East has won a World Series title except for the Mets. Yeah. The Marlins have won. The Marlins won also in 97. So you're talking about in my lifetime because I was born in 97. You got to see the Marlins win twice. The Phillies won in 08. We're in another World Series in 09. The Nationals won in 2019. Again, a team that was 16 games under 500 at one point. They come all the way back and win the World Series. And obviously, the Braves now this year. And if we're and the counting Braves, the year before 97, 96, did the Braves win in Braves won 90, in 95. 95. Yeah. Yeah, the year after the year after the strike. Yeah. Yep. So, and the Mets have nothing. They have one fluky postseason appearance because Daniel Murphy's back got hot. And again, they didn't make, you know, Anthopolis didn't make splashy moves. He made moves where he brought in Adam Duval. He brought in Jorge Soler. He brought in Eddie Rosario. These guys were scrappy. And let me and let me t- let me tell you something. Adam Duval had an OPS over 1,100 with runners in scoring position. Jock Peterson was NLDS MVP. Eddie Rosario was NLCS MVP, and Jorge Soler was World Series MVP. So those yeah. four non-earth shattering, non-sexy moves yep. were instrumental parts of them winning the World Series. And it didn't. Sure, Freddie Freeman got system. it done. Sure, Max Fried pitched a really good game in a game six. Sure, the bullpen was tremendous too. But also Austin credit to Riley. Anthopoulos. Austin Riley was tremendous. Austin also. Riley's he's, terrific. He's but also coming into his own. Credit to Anthopoulos for kind of finding that bullpen because it was actually interesting. I'm watching MLB tonight, and I'm watching. Watching Amzinger and Harold Reynolds and and DeRosa and Pedro talk to the guys on the Braves. And that whole three-headed monster in that bullpen between Will Smith, A.J. Minter, and Tyler Matzik. I mean, Will Smith has been a really good reliever for a long time. Sure, he's had ups and downs, but he's been a really good reliever for a long time. Never really had a solidified closers role. He took it and ran with it. The other two guys, Matzik and Minter, like failed starting pitchers. Matzik in particular, playing indie ball three years ago because he, he – he had the yips and couldn't throw any strikes and to bounce back and have an ERA under 1.5 in the entire postseason run. I mean, it's good scouting, good development, finding diamonds in the rough, finding supplemental pieces to your core. And you got a team who lost one of the top five players in all of baseball and they got better after he went out. Sure. They were only an 88 win team and they were probably one of the weakest teams on paper. As far as the, the NL rosters were concerned, does not matter. They were a team. They got it done when it mattered most. They had players who were, who lived in the moment and rose to the occasion, and now they're hoisting a trophy. So I think this should light a fire under Mets brass. And if it doesn't, well, then I, I can't really help them out. I don't think it will. I honestly, I don't think they have the players that 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 have a fire lit in their ass. I, I just don't. And now you just see, I don't know if you got the alert. All of a sudden now it comes out that, you know, a couple of players admitted to the fact of the Lindor-McNeil, you know, that whole raccoon debate. While it yep. was Lindor who wrapped his hands around McNeil's neck because of infield positioning problems and 
basically McNeil, who we've all felt has been a little bitch over the last year, was basically telling Lindor, shut up, I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I got it, I got it. And I guess Lindor had enough. And another reason why I brought in Javi Baez to play second base, and they put McNeil out in the outfield. So you're not going to see McNeil on this roster next year. I, I'm telling you right now, you're just not. You're not. So. Oh, this solidified it. This solidified it. And I know, you know, obviously reading that story on the surface, obviously, you, you know, Lindor should not have done that. But the root of the problem, I mean, at least, you know, it came from a good place. It came from a place of, hey, McNeil is not listening to the coaching staff. Someone needs to talk some sense into this guy because he's being defiant and he's being a baby. There's, there's no place for that. You want to build a winning culture that's not the type of guy that you need to have on a team. At least if you're going to be a me, me, me guy, go out there and compete for a triple crown. Don't be a guy who's hitting 240 and slams his helmet every time he makes an out, which evidently was all the time because he stunk this year. So, you know, go ahead. Good riddance. Kick him to the curb. Replace him. If you're going to sign back Javier Baez, second base is his anyways. If not, you got kids in the system who are middle infielders that are coming up. Maybe Ronnie Mauricio is the next second baseman. Who knows? But you know what? Just screw him. I don't want guys like that on the team when you're trying to build a culture. If they even are trying to build a culture, who the hell knows what's going on? We don't know what's going on with their GM search. There's a different name every week. Who's taking the name out of the race? Who's interested? Who wants the job? It's not getting interviewed. Who's getting denied permission? It's just a mess. We'll talk more about that in detail once we get some clarity and someone seems to be the leading front runner for the candidacy. But, you know, what? at this point, after that story comes out, you know, like I said, Lindor shouldn't have taken it to that level. Putting your hands around someone's neck, it's pretty disrespectful. It's going too far. You know, McNeil's a little baby, which is a feeling that the entire fan base has had pretty much all season. So doesn't really surprise me at all. No, it doesn't doesn't surprise us at all. McNeil has been like that. And, you know, it's not even like he's, you know, that that uh, that offensive potential that he showed uh, a couple of years ago is just it's gone by the wayside now. So, you know, I don't know. Well, but, the uh... so credit to the Braves. I mean, we'd hate to say it, but. Yeah. Yeah. Credit I to mean, them. I mean, they, you, you called it from the very beginning. It's not something that you're going to toot your horn and that you like that you're right about, but you were right about no. it. You were right about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, every, look, and teams are going to go out after this season. And like you said, once the collective bargaining agreement, hopefully they get this done sooner than later. Who knows if, if it will be, but somebody's going to go sign Rosario, sign Peterson, sign Soler. They're not going to get what they get out of them in these championship series. It's just not. Eddie Rosario was a guy. Was a guy that was basically DFA'd mm-hmm. a couple of times. <laughs> and listen, he's he's had some decent years behind him, you know. But somebody's going to overpay these guys. Oh, hey, Soler, another guy had a couple of good years, but you know, these guys aren't. You know, they're not needle movers. But somehow, some way, these guys came up clutch in the biggest spots, and that's been our downfall with the Mets, Andrew. We've been talking the last couple of years. They don't have clutch players. No, no. Analytics don't really believe in clutch, too, which is, I mean, I don't know how you can after watching this Brave series. They got an old school manager and Brian Snitker, old school guys on the bench, Ron Washington coaching third base. Walt Weiss is the bench coach. I mean, they go out there and just ride the hot hand. Guys like Jock Peterson, who were cast offs, Eddie Rosario, they got for Pablo Sandoval, Jorge Soler, they got for next to nothing. I mean, Look, and not all the moves they made were good. I mean, look, they went and traded a prospect to the to the Pittsburgh Pirates to get Richard Rodriguez, and Richard Rodriguez is a bullpen arm, didn't even make the postseason roster. But at least they tried. They went out there with an effort to get pieces that were better than the ones that they had. 
And listen, I know I'm not going to fully blame the Mets for it by, you know, cause you can't, like I've always said, you can't force other teams to fall in love with your prospects, but it goes back to the scouting and development, having a deep farm system, having mid-level minor league guys that you can trade and also kind of identifying where you are and making the necessary adjustments. You know, we could talk about how good Javier Baez was after he got here in the deadline, but was that the missing piece? Was that a correct, uh, you know, evaluation of where you were as a team? There's a lot of questions right. that go into it, but there's a lot, know, a lot of questions to be answered in the off season. And, and quite frankly, probably not a, not going to be answered in the, in the short term because of everything that's going to be going on surrounding the labor negotiations and, and things of that nature. Um, we'll touch quickly on the Knicks. We'll touch quickly on the Rangers and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it quits for this podcast. The Knicks are, are down 12 with 350 left against the Pacers. So this is going to be another loss for them. Uh, but obviously it's, it's been a, it's been a start to the season. That's been more than fine for the Knicks. Um, you know, I, I said, in one of our first episodes since basketball season started, I believe we actually recorded on opening night when they started the season off against the Boston Celtics two weeks prior. And um, I said that I thought that their roster was more talented and that I thought it was deeper than it was last season. Um, And again, you were right on the money with your assessment of the Knicks needing that outside shooter. Um, And Evan Fournier has been the difference maker. I mean, when the Knicks have won games for the most part, Fournier has been really effective at shooting the ball from the outside. Kemba Walker's done a really good job, you know, splitting time with Derrick Rose with point guard duties. Julius Randle's been good. R.J. Barrett has been really, really good. I mean, he had a 36-point performance where he dropped 18 in the fourth quarter against the Pelicans on Saturday night. That was unreal, including two huge threes down the stretch to kind of put the game away. So he's taking strides, as you would hope for and expect from a young kid. He's also dramatically improved defensively. Yeah. He really has, and he he's actually getting some comparisons now to uh, Kawhi Leonard, which is that's high praise. High but, praise, high but, praise. Uh, you know, he's got a higher ceiling than what he's played at, RJ Barrett. And you know, look, you you've seen you've seen glimpses of his talent level. Look, let's not forget, a couple of years ago, he was the number one rated uh, player in the country before Zion Williamson. You know, took a you know, storm. It's actually funny. So I was. Um... I was actually going back and listening to one of our old podcasts. Um, and, I, and I forget what I was looking for. I don't know if I was looking for a story that you had told or like something funny that happened on the podcast. I'm trying to pinpoint where it was. And in the episode that I was looking for it, I'm listening to one of our old conversations. Oh, you know what it was? It was, uh, it was when we had that 45 minute argument about George Springer. That's the episode that I was, I was listening to. And right before the argument, we were talking about whether or not the Knicks should pull the trigger for a deal for Oladipo. And one of the packages that I had proposed was Mitchell Robinson, the first round pick. And you were saying that you wouldn't give up Mitchell Robinson. And, and, you know, I was, uh, I wouldn't say that I was pushing for Mitchell Robinson to be traded in a deal like that, but I, I just have never been super high on Robinson because of his lack of offensive output. But I mean, not having him in the lineup last year due to injuries and now seeing him in the lineup now, I mean, he's playing more minutes than he probably normally would because Noel has been shaken up and hasn't been healthy. But, I mean, having him as a rim protector really makes the defense that much better. And the Knicks, Knicks have been giving out some outside shots, which is not what you want to see. And that happened in the Hawks series, too, obviously. They gave up some outside shooting. That was a difference in the series. But having Robinson in the paint as a rim protector, really underrated piece of this team moving forward. And you know that Thibodeau's teams are predicated upon defense. So having that stopgap in the middle of the paint, it, it's a big deal. So that's why you don't give up on a guy, even though he might not be – offensively what you hoped. I mean, at the end of the day, when he gets the ball in his hands, he does score. I mean, he's, he's 
pretty much leads the league in field goal percentage because all of his shots are high percentage from the low block. Um, but he doesn't do much else besides that. But on the defensive end, he's the kind of guy that I think you can make the argument is irreplaceable. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I always like Mitchell Robinson's game. The biggest problem with Mitchell Robinson is, is again, it's staying healthy. You know, he stays healthy. He's, he's a good player. And look, the, you know, the centers have become basically, I'm not going to say, I mean, this, look, you still got uh, uh, Joker over there, and Jokic. You still have a couple of centers there. But, you know, for the most part, it's all about three-point shooting in this game. But you still have to have a rim protector. You still have the guy to get the big rebounds on, the, on both sides, you know, offensively and defensively here. And Mitchell Robinson was that guy for the Knicks. And he's got some talent. He can score down low if you need it. So, uh, you know. And, you know, he's a, he's a developing player, but the injuries have curtailed him and kind of stopped his development a little bit. But you're starting to see it now again this season. And let's hope he could stay healthy because if he can, it's going to help the Knicks immensely this season. And look, the Knicks come off, you know, like you mentioned, they, they look like they're losing to the Pacers tonight. They're going to lose that game. They lost to the Raptors the other night where they had a lead, but then the Raptors outscored them in, in the third quarter. Fred Van Vliet was terrific as he's always he's been that way for the last couple of years. So, you know, the Knicks, are, look, they're, they're going to be an up and down team, the Knicks, but they're going to win their 45 games. I think that, you know, they were, they're in the mid forties as far as their wins, the Knicks and defensively, they got to shore up some issues there because they're not nearly as good as they were last year on the defensive side of the ball. They've been scoring more because like you said, Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier, you know, guys like that. RJ Barrett's offensive game got better. So, um, let's see what happens, but it's still a mid 40 win team, but this is going to be the type of team where you're going to see the Knicks play two or three tremendous games and then have two or three stinkers like they've had over the past 10 days. So look, uh, yeah, the other side, the team, the team in Brooklyn is the team you have to be careful with because that team is so volatile. My God, the Kevin Durant got thrown out of the game the other day for throwing an elbow uh, you know, it's just it's so much volatility in that net team. I, I tell you, if I'm Steve Nash, man, I'm probably going for, for therapy. I'll be honest with you, because that's a tough team to look at and watch. I mean, yeah, they have tremendous talent there if Kyrie comes back. But with Durant and Harden there, they should have enough. But, you know, listen, they're not getting contributions from, from the lesser type plays that they did in the past, especially guys like Joe Harris. Well, once he signed that big contract, it really is shooting's been terrible. So, look, you know, the Nets will be in the mix. They're going to be a top five team for sure. The Nets, how could they not, barring injuries? But they can't afford a big injury to Durant or Harden because without Kyrie Irving there, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a tall task. Uh, and really even is. Harden now. I mean, with the NBA making the rule changes, guys are not getting to the free throw line as often. Harden has not been as prolific of a scorer as he's been in recent years. And I'm glad that they changed the rule, too. It needed to be changed. But, you know, you're no longer seeing, and not that James Harden's a bad player by any stretch, but he's not being able to score at the same clip that he was because he's not being able to take advantage of the rules. And, you know, not that the NBA was out to get guys like him and guys like Trey Young, but it's not an appealing watch. You, you don't want to go into a game and just watch guys exploit little tidbits of rules. It's it's not an appealing watch. And at the end of the day, the fans are what make the sport what it is, is because viewership dictates everything. So it was a change that needed to be made. But, you know, he's going to need to get he needs to be more aggressive. He's being too passive because of the fact that he's not getting the foul calls. I think he still needs to be aggressive and get to the hoop 
and he still needs to shoot from the outside. A lot of times you see Harden passing up open looks from the outside because he's deferring to Kevin Durant because Durant is the number one ball-dominant guy. I want to see Harden take control more. He's a point guard for a reason, and he can be a ball-dominant point guard. James, uh, If James Harden takes more shots, it's not taking away from Durant's output. It's going to be less shots for guys like Bruce Brown and guys like Patty Mills. Durant is still going to get his shots. So I'd like to see Harden be a little bit more aggressive. Um, you know, Kyrie remains steadfast. Who the hell knows what's going to happen with that? Um, you know, obviously there was an election in New York City last night. There's a new mayor now, and he said that he's going to he's willing to revisit the vaccine mandate. I don't foresee there being a change. So unless Kyrie has a change of heart, you know, you're not going to see him. And you've already seen Steve Nash come out and make a statement that they are not going to have Kyrie in a limited capacity. They're not going to allow him to participate with the team unless no, he can be a full, full participant at all times. And yeah, I, I agree with them. Completely, hundred percent. So, should they? So, but the well, East is wide open because you the see one Milwaukee's got their troubles too. Yeah, the one. Well, you know, listen, coming off a championship, you you know you have some troubles. So be it. You know, you don't want to have the troubles, but they'll rectify whatever problems they have there, in Milwaukee. I'm sure they'll be fine. Um, but one thing he did hear from Durant was that he was going to play back to back games, which is if you're the Nets and the Nets fan base, you're happy to hear that. Because you really, first of all, you do need that. And I think Kevin Durant recognizes that as well. And Durant's a competitor. One thing, you know, listen, he's a bit of a, an asshole. But one thing about Kevin Durant is he is the ultimate competitor, that guy. I'll tell you the truth. So yeah, For sure. Um, you know, but and, and Durant recognizes the fact that there's no Kyrie. And, you know, they're going to need somebody there on a nightly basis just be, besides James Harden. So Kevin Durant can't afford to sit out. Um, so. We'll touch on the Rangers before we call it quits. And it, it's been a it's been a really good start to the season for the Rangers. I know we were down in the dumps about their start because obviously we recorded on Rangers opening night as well. And they had a 5-1 loss to the Capitals where they just looked horrendous. Um, but they're sitting in a really good spot right now, obviously, through the first 10 games of the season. They're 6-2-2. Two, two. They got 14 points, second in the Metro. Um, you were right about your analysis of them getting off to a, to a slow start um, in terms of the way that they're playing. Um, there's at least two of these games that they have stolen simply because of their goaltending, because Igor oh, Shesterkin yeah. has just been performing at an, at an all-time level right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I a think the only good game that they played and, and really won legitimately was Columbus. Was the Columbus game, and that mm-hmm. was it. Because I yeah. tell you the truth, I don't think they've been that good. Well, I think uh, I think they played good enough to win against Nashville. But the Toronto game was completely stolen by yeah. Igor and nobody else. The, the, game the against, Ottawa game. The, the Ottawa game was a fluky comeback at the end. Um, and, you know, Gorgiev actually played well enough in that game to keep them in it till the very end because Ottawa had some high percentage opportunities and he was able to, to keep them in check. Um, the game against Seattle, the first 10 minutes the Rangers played okay. From that point on, they were they were horrendous. They, they were horrendous. Dominant. And Igor, Igor was able to steal that game. Yeah. Um, and then obviously last night against Vancouver, they didn't play great either. They had a 2 nothing lead going into the third period. Eventually it caught up with them. You can't allow teams to get that many high percentage looks and go into the penalty box as much as the Rangers did last night. I yeah. believe they had six penalties last night. Um, so, you know, and I you, told can't, you, Andrew, you can't rely not... on your goaltender to put forth a Vezina-type performance every single night if you want to make a postseason right. Which is what at. Lundqvist did pretty much his entire career. But yes, I, I, And I told you this in a, a couple of weeks ago. They got to start getting more contributions from Kako and Lafreniere. There's just, I, I tell you the truth, for these two guys that, you know, came into the league with this generational-type talent, I'm not seeing it at all. Uh-uh. I mean, I'm not seeing any offensive game from either guy. I'm really not. Are you? I, I think you, you're 
you're seeing it from Lafreniere in spurts, which is, you know, kind of goes back to what we were saying about Daniel Jones before, right? He teases you every now and again with a really nice play. Kako, I think, has been non-existent. I think he's been very good as far as his defensive game is concerned, but you don't draft the guy number two overall because he's good in the trenches. You, you draft a guy two overall because oh, of his yeah. scoring output, and that was the word on Kako is that he wasn't playing in juniors. He was playing against men, and he was a physical specimen, even though he's not a big in stature and that he was dominant with the puck on his stick. And then he wasn't afraid to shoot, but he's timid, although a little less timid now than he has been in recent years, but there's, there's no offensive output. He doesn't have a single point yet this season. Um, you know, Lafreniere at least has scored a couple of big goals. You see him in spurts showing some offensively, but again, like you said, Rob, you're drafting a guy first overall, who's supposed to be a generational type talent. You need to see it on a more consistent basis. And I'm not saying it at all. I'm you're not starting any to sort of, any no. sort of offensive game that leads me to believe that these guys are, are, are playing to this talent level that we've seen it. I, I'm, I don't I, I mean, I, maybe a little bit Lafreniere and Spurts a little bit, but not a lot. Not and, a but lot nothing, but nothing from Kako. Nothing from nothing. Kako. Absolutely zero from Kako. Absolutely nothing. So from I don't him. know what's going on there with him. I no. really don't. But And, and you know what? The, the thing that's a little concerning and obviously, you know, like I said, they're in a good spot right now because they've been, you know, even two out of their three losses, um, or two out of their four losses, they took to overtime. They were able to steal a point. Dallas, they were able to get a point last night against Vancouver, even though they had a 2 nothing lead at one point. But again, you know, they're relying on Igor Shesterkin to keep them in games by playing at a Vezina level. And the offense, what's a little concerning to me, and we said this not last year, but we said it two years ago when the season was cut short um, against Carolina. We said that, they, they seem too top-heavy offensively. And when the first and second line isn't getting it done, uh, and particularly the first line, then you have prime concerns about how many scoring opportunities you're going to get. Now, granted, I think their fourth line has probably played better than their fourth line has played in years. And, and they're able to sustain a little bit of offensive pressure. The forecheck is really good. They have big physical guys on their fourth line. But how, reasonably, how many quality scoring chances can you expect from guys like Ryan Reeves and Kevin Rooney? Like, yeah, they wear the defense out. A lot of times they go on the ice against a, an opposing team's top pair and they wear them out. So you get more chances for your top lines against second and third pair defensemen, which is good. But those top lines need to produce. I, I think Panarin... You look at his stat line, he's racked up some points. Good for him. But objectively speaking, this has been the worst 10-game stretch of Panarin's career as a Ranger. Too many sloppy turnovers. Yeah, he's just – I tell you the truth. I don't know what Panarin's doing. He's carrying the puck way too much. Sloppy turnovers. He's making these cross-eyed passes that are just – you know, somebody's got to rein him in a little bit. He's got to be reined in a little bit, Panarin. Yeah, I don't like his game either. I don't like his game at all, in fact. No. And what was once the bread and butter of Mika Zibanejad's game, which was the one-timer from the right slot. Haven't when was it. the last time you seen him pot a one-time goal? Haven't seen it. So, a little bit of a concern. I've not seen it. But Kreider has been a presence, which is good. I mean, it's a, it's a contract that doesn't look like a favorable one. But, you know, he's had some offensive output, and it's not just the deflections in front. He's been good right. with the puck on a stick and open Listen, space. We, we, we know Kreider. We know Kreider is, is, is the guy that's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's going to be hot for a couple of weeks, and then we're gonna, three weeks we're going to wonder where the hell he went. But, again, it's <laughs> concerning if, 
here's the thing I think we can both agree on. You're not a playoff team if Chris Crowder is your top goal scorer. No. You need more production out of Zibanejad and Panarin. Well, you need Zibanejad, Panarin. You need Kako. You, you need Hedl to come around. You need, you know, one thing I thought about watching his games the other day, I'm one, you know, sometimes I wonder if the Rangers need a, just a true, real true making, a true playmaking center. Doesn't have to be the great, just has to be a guy that could almost be like a point guard. I don't think they have guys between Hedl and Strom. They're not those types of guys that are just true playmaking centers. No, they, you know what they did? Like, you look at Adam Fox. Like, there's certain points in a game where Adam Fox just takes it over. But you can only take over a game to a certain extent as a defenseman when the puck is on your stick. You know, Fox and McCarr and McAvoy, like, those are, those are a, a select few number of guys that are able to do that. But, again, you're limited to what you can do as a defenseman when you're handling the puck on the point. You need a centerman who could be able to do that. As good as Mika is, and I love him to death, he's not the type of guy who's going to take over a game. He's not fast enough to do it. He's not skilled enough with his hands to do it. He's incredibly smart, which I think makes up for his lack of talent in other areas, and that's probably what makes him the player that he is. But, I mean, there's no Austin Matthews on this team. There's no Sebastian Ajo on this team. There's no Elias Pettersson on this team. And that might be... That, that may be holding them back. And if anything, I'd say the, 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 the biggest, the best playmaking center they have is Panarin. And he's a winger who plays with center. You know, he plays a center-like style from the wing. It's not the same as having a true centerman that could be a playmaker. This sounds crazy, but I wouldn't mind him one time trying, maybe during a game or whatever, starting a game and putting Lafreniere and Kako on the top line with Zibinijad. And then putting Panarin with Kreider and, and Strom on the second line. Well, listen, he's been very good. He does a lot of things well. He's a tough SOB. But Barkley Goodrow does, does, belongs nowhere near the top line. He's not no. a top-line player. No. Third-line, fourth-line player. That's what he is. And, you know, I see people trying to justify it by his point total. I mean, he's got three empty net goals. Right. That's why his point total is so high. He's not a right. top-line player. I think he's a fine player. He had a shaky first few games. He's been very good special teams-wise, blocking shots. He's doing exactly what they acquired him to do. Right. He's not a top-line player. No, he's not. So maybe that's what you need. Put these young guys. I mean, it's ice time is not a problem anymore. Ice time was a problem with Quinn. Ice time is not a problem anymore. They're getting the ice time. Now it's just putting it all together and seeing what they got. And it hasn't been yeah. as promising as you would have hoped so far. But yeah. Igor is keeping them in it. So they got another game on Friday night. They are, uh, who do they got on Saturday Friday? Saturday night, isn't it? Is it Saturday night or Friday night? They play Edmonton. They that's got fr- be, Friday and Saturday. They that's, play back a lit- to back. that's a litmus test. Litmus test right there. Edmonton on Friday. You figure Sturkin plays on Friday, and then Gorgiev probably plays Saturday against Calgary. And listen, Calgary's a real good team, too. Calgary had their way with the Rangers on the Rangers' yeah. home ice. Now they Two play them in Calgary. The Rangers back to back, and Gorgiev will get one of these games. I'm sure Sturkin will probably play the Friday night game against Edmonton. Edmonton has been terrific to start the season. They've been really, really good, and they got a lot of firepower there. A lot. So this is going to be a tough test for the Rangers, a real tough test. Two tough games in a row with Edmonton and Calgary here. So that's yeah, why the sure. Vancouver game would have been a big game to get that of that second point. Oh, but what are you going to do? Well, listen, I mean, everybody, everybody's rightfully going to talk about Dreisaitl and McDavid and you got Nugent Hopkins there. But, yeah, I mean, when you got a guy like Zach Cassian is like a fourth line winger. I mean, that's 
<laughs> that goes to show you how much depth they have offensively. I know. It's crazy. No, I know. They're putting it all together. And, you know, they've been getting some good goaltending now, Edmonton. So, look, we'll see. Like I said, this is a litmus test for the Rangers, these, these two games back-to-back with Edmonton and Calgary. Well, they're so, getting good goaltending, and Mike Smith is out. It's the backup Koskinen. Yeah, Koskinen. Been, he's doing phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, he's been phenomenal. Been phenomenal. So, so all right. All right, that'll uh, that will wrap it up for tonight's episode. So not a ton to speak of in terms of our pick'em. Rob and I had two of the, the same picks, so we differ on one of them. Rob's got Bengals minus two and a half. I got Jets plus ten and a half. So that'll decide who moves in what direction as we move forward. But big time games for the Jets and Giants. Giants on life support, pretty much, is, is in terms of their playoff hopes. Again, I'm not saying that they deserve to be a playoff team, but when you look at the bottom the bottom tier of the playoff race in the NFC, I mean, they're they're right there. Uh, so this is a very important game against a team that's facing a ton of adversity. And you got the Jets looking to keep some momentum on a short week after a big-time victory at home. So we'll be back next week to break down all of that. We will recap all of Week 9. We will look ahead to Week 10, as we always do. Um, you know, Hopefully, one of these days, we start to get a little bit of clarity on what's going to happen with the Mets and their front office search. When that happens, we will go more I mean, in depth with it. You heard maybe uh, Raquel Ferreira from, from the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, today you're hearing but Billy you know Epler. What? She's got a prominent position there, so you know she might not even want to, uh, you know, make the move. Yeah, who knows? I, I, and they're, they're talking about one of the executives from the Orioles. You really want an analytic executive from the Orioles? I mean, you know, I don't know. So, who the hell knows? knows? Who the hell knows? I don't at this know, point? man. It, it's just a, it's a mess. No, no, but well, another week of Knicks basketball, another week of Rangers hockey to speak of next time around. So we're going to be we're going to be chock full of material to talk about in all these episodes moving forward. But that will wrap things up for episode number 80. Plaxico Burris, number 80, back when he was a stealer, before he was in his glory is winning rings. Victor Cruz doing a salsa salsa dancer. Number 80. Is there a number 80 now on the Giants? No, right? No. Was uh, was Jeremy Shockey 80 also? Jeremy Shockey was 80. Phil McConkney was 80 back in the days. Yeah, Jeremy Shockey was 80. Yeah, Plaxico Burris was 80. I'm trying to think who else was 80. I think Cedric Wilson might have been number 80. I don't believe they have an 80 on the roster now. But, uh, yeah, so that'll do it for big episode. And episode number 80, we'll be back with 81 next week. As always, you can follow Rob and I on our social media accounts. Rob can be found on Twitter and very active on Twitter. Rob OG6, R-O-B-B-O. G6. You can follow me, Andrew May underscore 21. You can follow me on Instagram as well, A underscore May 21. Links to the podcast will get posted there. And uh, we look forward to talking to everybody next week. So thank you for the continued support. Thanks everyone for listening and and reaching out. We appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to many action-packed episodes with some entertainment and some laughs along the way. So until next week, for Rob Jufre, I'm Andrew May. See you guys.